Welcome to The Future Strategist with James Miller. Today, my guest for the second time is Greg Cochran. Greg was my most popular podcast guest. He got even more listens than my interview with Dilbert cartoonist Scott Adams did. Greg is a physicist who has studied evolution and human genetics. He is the co-author of The 10,000-Year Explosion, How Civilization Accelerated Human Evolution, and he blogs at West Hunt. Uh, welcome, Greg, and thanks for coming on again. Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm excellent, thank you. Okay. So, Greg, one topic you often explore on your blog is, uh, is political correctness and kind of the harm that it does. What, what do you think, what is, the, what is a way of handling political correctness? I probably don't really know, but I, I can at least have some thoughts on it. Okay. Uh, you know, like, what do we mean when we say this? I said, it's a certain kind of politic, political stance that sort of insists that everybody conform to it, uh, uh, which is not unique, but they're the one in the saddle right now, and they're more that way than a lot of other people have been in the past, I think. Uh, you know, there have been times in American history in which there would be people who had attitudes that were really very non-standard, but, but they managed to... Uh, to, I mean, you know, like Jefferson didn't fit in very well with the way the average American thought, but they, you know, they still elected him president. Things like that. Um, or uh, I can think of others, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. But these people, are, it's real important to shut other people up. And, and they have a fair amount of success, which is um, sometimes surprising to me because I say, you know, you know screw them if they can't take a joke. Uh, wh wh why do people listen? I said, a lot of people are worried about social exclusion, about jobs. Well, there are other jobs. You know, people worry too much about it. But it makes you think that Stalin really tried harder than he needed to. Uh, because, you know, he shot lots of people to try to get conformity. And Americans, apparently, uh, you don't need to go anywhere near that far. Yeah, you just need to threaten to fire people, and you'll get most of them to shut up. Look, threatening tenure threatening not being invited to parties, yeah. saying, you know, we're talking, of course, you know, maybe Russians are tougher than we are. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, Cer certainly most of them who lived under Stalin probably got to be tougher than we, we one are. One way or another, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I don't really, you know, it's concentrated in certain areas. It's much more true in academic life than in general life, I think, although it's sort of spreading. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't really understand it. I mean, that it's, it's you know, people might call it left wing, but you know, it's a completely different thing than the things we called left wing uh, a long time ago. It's not talking too much about uh, class differences. It doesn't worry too much about you know whether you know you know the average guy uh, makes money uh, uh, or has a decent job. It's much more interested in. Uh, completely other things. It's sort of hard to find any continuity between them and, let's say, the Labor Party in, 19, you know, in uh, 1948 or something. Mm -hmm. uh, probably you can't. But there's sort of, but there is, there's a kind of continuity because, you know, of personnel, I think. I mean, those people are old now, but, you know, their children, you know, certain groups, they're still the left-wing groups, even if the things they say are wildly different or the things they apparently care about are wildly different. Than, uh, than they used to be. Yeah. I think there's still a fair amount of 
the same crew is there. And not, they, not entirely, but... And they seem today to believe in the blank slate hypothesis that we're all born equal in every way except for what status our parents have. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, now they were sort of for that in 1948, uh, but, uh, not, but they were much more interested in producing steel <laughs> or tanks yeah. or, uh, or, um, or inoculating people. I mean, they, uh, if, if, if your old fashioned leftists hadn't had these bad habits of killing so many people, I probably would prefer them, uh, <laughs> to, uh. Uh, and and uh, certainly I, f I kind of feel as if I understand them better in some ways, but that's probably an illusion. I probably don't really understand anybody. But, uh, uh, yeah, well, the blank slate thing is important to them. Uh, you know, the evidence is pretty strongly against it. I mean, you know, there's certainly, like, if any, if any personality characteristics are heritable, and then the blank slate is fairly wrong. And since when people measure it, almost every personality characteristic is fairly heritable. Mm -hmm. They obviously are wrong. Now, and, and the thing is, this does get in the way of figuring things out, but that's, you know, for most people, that isn't a real high priority anyhow, so that's not a major obstacle. But for example, like we know now that political attitudes, sort of basic ones, not so much which party are you for, but which flavor of party are you for, that kind of thing, are fairly heritable, although somehow this is, is consistent with the with the things people are talking about being different than the past, uh, but but they're somewhat heritable. I, I'm not sure what scientific result you could ever find that would change anybody's mind on most of these things. Well, uh, actually, not, you, not true. I can think of one. If you understood something well enough that you could either cause or prevent it, people would take it more seriously. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you understand things but you can't do much about them, people, you know, that's still a valid kind of of knowledge, but people don't like it much. They don't, they, they feel it's easier to ignore, I think. So you don't think that gene sequencing is eventually going to destroy the blank slate view, that if, assuming that a lot of things have a genetic influence, if we find them and scientists publish papers saying, look, just give me someone's, you know, genome and I can tell you with 80% accuracy who they voted for in the last election, you don't think that would, that would or work? Well, let's suppose Rick, I could say, you know, how well they did on the SAT, I can predict, or something. Yeah. Or how well they do in an algebra class, uh, which are more interesting to me, typically, than how they voted. Although, you know, that could be interesting sometimes. Uh, uh, I don't think... I don't know. I mean, I, like, I could say that probably won't change many minds, but that's not the same as saying that minds won't change. Mm -hmm. Minds change, and it's hard to say why. I mean, sometimes you'll understand it. Like, you could say... Like, between, say, 1942 and 1946, there were a lot of Germans who changed their minds yeah. about their natural right to, to step on everybody in <laughs> Europe. And, what, and we, I think I could describe some of the things that changed their minds, you know, such as, you know, when 8,000 British and American bombers visited Berlin one day, or when the Red Army visited Berlin, or when, you know, five million German troops get killed, or even a little bit, you know, when there's, people are kind of on the edge of starvation in the winter of 45, mm -hmm. uh, uh, or more like 46, actually. Uh, yeah, you could change people's minds. You just have to get their attention first. Uh, Imagine we, you know, we, we get a better understanding of how genomes influence personality and embryo selection becomes a big thing. 
where when you have a kid, you, you know, the, the couple produces 20 embryos, and a lot of people are then taking the embryos to geneticists, and they're saying, okay, these are the likely personality traits. Then do you think pretty much everyone who could afford this technology would be saying, okay, well, I, I do believe it, and I'll, I'll make use of it to get the type of kid I want? Not immediately. I mean, maybe not at all. It's, it's sort of, I mean, I don't understand people well enough to tell what they're going to do in the future, except sometimes, like maybe, you know, when they would probably choose not to starve to death. Or so. mm -hmm. And by the way, I'd be wrong about that, because that's been known to happen. People have chosen to starve to death sometimes, uh, not just Bobby Sands. Uh, when have people chosen to starve to death other than when they have a life where they're, you know, they're better off being dead? Uh, there, there was this tribe whose name I can't pronounce perfectly because they have a click in their language uh, that they borrowed from the Bushmen, the Zosa, mm -hmm. it, which is, I think, the tribe that Mandela was from in South Africa. Back in the uh, 19th century, uh, a prophetess explained that if they would kill all their cattle and burn all their crops, that that would make all the bad guys go away. The bad guys were the Zulu and the British, mm -hmm. or, or, or at the Boers, and that they would then be given new and more beautiful cattle. And they tried it, <laughs> but it didn't, it didn't work. Uh, uh, many of them starved to death. Uh, so, you know, people can be pretty screwy. Uh, the, uh, in fact, you know, like you can sort of say, there's a sort of practical limit of how screwy you can be, which is when you manage to, you know, you stop growing food successfully, or you accidentally get into a war that you all get killed. And a lot of, it's, I think people have an impulse to skate along that edge as close as they can. Uh, certainly they're doing it right now. Uh, but, uh, yeah, people can be suicidally crazy as a society. It's happened. Uh, I mean, like when, you know, when Germany, you know, they're fighting England and they haven't really finished it. And so in the next six months, they declare war on the two other most powerful countries in the world, <laughs> the Soviet yeah. Union and the United States. I remember reading uh, somebody, historian said, this defies analysis. And I said, yeah. Or there were guys, uh, which is a war something to worry about, by the way, that, you know, you mean deterrence might not work or, uh, but, uh, like there were people who knew a lot about Japan and said, well, they won't declare war in the United States. They said, what? Cause they'd lose, yeah. which was, if anything, clearer than whether Germany, Germany might possibly have had a chance. Maybe if they'd knock Russia out of the war, Japan never had a chance. Uh, you know, they had an industrial economy about a tenth the size of the United States or something back then. Uh, but they did it anyhow. Yeah, I think uh, it was forgivable for us not to think the Japanese would be that stupid as to attack us. Well, I can tell you some of the guys who made that mistake had trouble forgiving themselves because they you know, said, I, 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 you know, it was their job to project. It was their job to figure it out, and they came out wrong. Uh, and, you know, Navy guys who a lot of their friends got killed. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was hard to see, I think. Uh, uh, so, uh, any rate, uh, yeah, we, we, there's probably no real limit to how crazy we can be. Well, I mean, some people think that we're, we're pushing extinction now. I mean, some people think with, you know, with global warming that we're just doing something that'll destroy us. Uh, I, I myself, I think that AI is likely to turn, you know, go very, very badly and has a high chance of exterminating our species. And well, I could imagine AI is a problem. I don't think global warming is going to exterminate the species. I mean, the world has been warmer at times in the, you know, moderately recent geological past. You know, talking about the Miocene, the Pliocene and stuff. And if anything, uh, there was more life then than there is now. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, we're in a, you know, the last couple of million years, we've been in a glacial age in between in the deep freeze and just barely out of it like we are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem with global warming, if, if the things happen that people project in the more uh, pessimistic uh, models are, is not so much that, you know, we're all screwed, is that we have trouble because of, at least to my mind, and I'm, I don't know everything about this, is that it would be change. Uh, so, for example, if we have, we're used to doing things in a certain way in terms of growing crops in Iowa, and Iowa's climate becomes significantly warmer or perhaps drier, uh, drier would be more serious, mm-hmm. uh, then, you know, the, the things we were doing don't work. We, it doesn't mean there isn't anything you can do, but you have to change. Change is expensive. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for example, what if you had to irrigate Iowa? Right now, we mostly don't. <laughs> but, but if we did, well, we could... Uh, but it would not be simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's and would and wouldn't necessarily work instantaneously. And there's other countries like if sea level rises moderately, which is again the sort of projection that that's considered one of the more pessimistic projections. You know, mostly, mostly, well, Iowa wouldn't suffer at all. Now Bangladesh, since they only average about you know eight feet above sea level, they'd be in trouble. Mm-hmm. So, but but none that's that's nothing compared, you know, that's not a threat to the human race. It's not even a threat really to, you know, our, our current general technology and way of living. It's it's saying that you would have regional trouble. So you don't think there's a chance of a runaway greenhouse effect where we become like Venus? Well, not unless there's stuff that nobody knows about, because we've certainly had the whole world much warmer for very long periods, like the entire uh, Cretaceous was warmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, things were warm up fairly close to the poles. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and it didn't spiral like that. So, you know, maybe I'm missing something, but I no, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, but uh, although I suppose if we carefully burn every bit of fossil fuels and end up, you know, I guess I, I'd have to look and see what's the upper limit. Although, you, on what's the maximum amount of carbon dioxide you can like? Certainly, if we get up to four percent, that's bad because then you start to kill over. <laughs> okay. But right now we're at about 400 parts per million, and that's not very close to that. So we're safe for quite a while. Well, you, so you think AI in terms could, of breathing? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. So you think AI could be a big risk? Maybe. I mean, it's not something that you know the Earth has gone through multiple times in the past and came out. At least I don't think it is. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, Yeah. Although, yes, I I'm supposed to come up with at least one insane theory. Uh, pop by popular demand okay. and, uh, uh, that has not been previously mentioned. And my favorite is that, uh, which I don't actually believe, but that's why it's an insane theory, is that uh, it turns out that all the massive extinctions all correspond to the uh, evolution of some intelligent life form on Earth. <laughs> and they just so didn't have, trace. And, you know, and they, their reach exceeds their grasp after a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they learn how to do things and they're not probably they get their technology gets stronger than their common sense and then they make a mistake and then that's the end of that and you have a mass extinction so the idea there must have been some something that lived at the end of the Cretaceous that uh, I figured they were doing asteroid mining mm. oh yeah and they crashed one in made a little mistake yeah and you know previously something else became intelligent at the end of the Permian and did something else bad. And that wiped, and that was worse, by the way, than the, uh, than the, uh, 
uh, Cretaceous extinction. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that, that, that's my model. It's all intelligent life uh, destroyed everything. See, this also kind of fits with the Fermi paradox. Yeah, yeah, I, I was thinking that too. Because, yeah, if this is happening on a lot of planets, it would explain why we haven't encountered extraterrestrial life. It's kind of hard to make this work, though, because even if, suppose you had a civilization somewhat like ours at the end of the Cretaceous, you'd think we'd be, you know, finding beer cans and things, in, uh, or, the, or their equivalent of the pyramids, and nobody's ever found anything. So this probably doesn't work, but it would be fun. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, well, also suggest if we dug, if we were lucky, we'd find, you know, lost cities and ancient technology and other fun things. Yeah. Or maybe we should look on the moon for their relics there that would survive much they longer. Would be, they would be better preserved. And that would actually give us a reason to go to the moon. Uh, we, could, we could find that monolith. Maybe that's, maybe that's why we went to the moon back, <laughs> in, back in the 60s. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, I was imagining a second race to the moon. But, uh, yeah, maybe that's what it was all about. Uh, uh, but I don't think so, really. Uh, well, if this is true, we should be altruistic towards the, the next generation. We should leave things in space that will be easily found. Well, but, but the point is... When you speed up this process, it just speeds them up killing themselves. Is that How altruistic is that, really? Well, we, it could just be a warning, then. It could be, look, we made it this far. Something got us. As of this writing, we don't know what it is. But be but, very but, careful. But yes. <laughs> but but the, point, yeah, the idea is that each goes a little farther because they learn from the technology of the last one. Mm -hmm. So we would go on and make, and, you know, that would at least be something to aim for, making new mistakes. Yes. Rather than making old mistakes that have already been made, we wouldn't want to make those Permian mistakes. You know that would indicate that there was no real progress. Well, we I mean, have to make bigger and better mistakes. Yeah, and of course, there's a chance if we avoid the mistakes they made, we could you know start to colonize other planets, and we could you know escape being trapped on one planet, and well, we could diversify ourselves. Like there's a lot of mistakes to make. Otherwise, yeah. you'd think there'd be people spreading through the galaxy, and we haven't seen any sign of it. There's probably, it's probably mistakes all the way down. There's always one new way to kill yourself. Yeah. But As you get more and more sophisticated. Of course, the other thing is you could just go screwy. Uh, you, know, you know, we were talking about some of the things that science does not seem to uh, support that people believe in more now than they did, let's say, 40 or 50 years ago, you know, when, you know in terms of blank slate stuff. That wasn't as... You know, there's been a tendency along for some time, but I don't think it used to be as compulsory as it is now mm -hmm. uh, in most universities. Yeah, well, yeah, political correctness has gotten a lot stronger, although my guess is in some ways if there's more scientific evidence for a hated view, then you've got to have stronger defenses against people believing that hated view. Well, and there's also the argument that one way to, to make something a good test of group membership is you don't ask them to do something reasonable because does that prove that they're loyal? Mm -hmm. Like... Like I, I once said, what if you had a group and the, the way you proved that you were a true vetted member was that you uh, took a pretty girl out and had ice cream with her on a hot summer day? You know, that was that was the test you had to pass. Right. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't tell you much about your, your loyalty to the group, but if you think about like the way the Plains Indians would put uh, certain tribes would, uh, they'd stick all these little skewers into your chest and hang you from the top of the... You know, you would, you would hang suspended by these things that cutting into your flesh. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a sign you mean it. Yeah. And well, perhaps what we're talking about here is they're asking you to believe 
crazier and crazier things as a sign of group loyalty. Cool. Uh, yeah, well, that's part, get, that's part of the idea behind religion, isn't it? Where they try to get you to agree to things that just seem crazy in order to prove you'll go along with the general views of the religion. Maybe. I don't know. Being fairly religious myself, I probably am not. A, I'm probably <laughs> already trapped. Okay. Uh, but uh, maybe. Okay. But, you know, they don't usually you know, try to make it infinitely complicated unless you're a theologian. Well, they have uh, different levels, right? So no matter what your level of intelligence, there's the right beliefs that'll fit in for you all the way up to well, as smart as you can get. Where there, there, are, there are groups that in which the average person doesn't know any of their key beliefs because you have to study with a, a master for years to find out what it is that you're theoretically believing at all. Mm -hmm. uh, the Alawites in Syria are like that. I don't think the average Alawite knows what he's supposed to believe at all. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but they're, you know, they're... They're, they're so non-standard, they're probably not Muslims. Uh, but they have been, it has been said that they are Shiites without being Muslims, yeah. which is actually quite a trick. Uh, but, uh, for example, they don't build mosques, uh, they drink wine, they celebrate Christmas. Uh, they, they were, traditionally, they were, their women were fairly, um, fairly emancipated, but for a, a completely non-standard reason, uh, it was because they were believed not to have souls, so it didn't really matter. <laughs> oh God! You haven't heard that. You haven't heard that. I hadn't heard that. The women, do, the men do have souls, though, but the women don't. Yes, the men do. Uh, there's also, but since a lot of this stuff is secret, it may not. We not, may not understand it perfectly. There are also indications they believed in uh, reincarnation, mm -hmm. and in uh, and many other things. Uh, but uh, in general, they. See, they live in a precarious situation because kind of by luck, they're, they're a small fraction of the population of Syria, but they ended up running the show. Mm -hmm. uh, partly because uh, back in the day when the French were hiring cops and soldiers, most people wouldn't do it when it was a French colony, when Syria right. was a French colony. Most people wouldn't do it because they didn't like them. And so there was a despised minority group that was willing to become uh uh, the, joined the gendarmerie, oh. and after their independence, they tended to have a pretty strong position in the army, mm -hmm. and eventually, they took over. Uh, and the problem is, is they can't afford to lose, uh, because uh, you know one of the more unstable situations is where you have a despised minority is ruling, uh, and it tends to get worse with time because you know they tried they tried some things to get people to uh, you know they tried to offer the general population something. But after a couple of revolts, which they crushed, the, you know, they went from being ruled by somebody despised to, uh, to, to actually hating them a lot. And so they're kind of in an unstable situation. I've heard people think, you know, if they actually lose them, uh, <clears throat> they're probably a pretty good candidates for a massacre. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, a common saying in the, among the rebel groups in Syria, which was Christians to Beirut, Alawites to the grave. Mm -hmm. So probably the only way we could broker our peace is to let all the Alawites come leave leave Syria and become refugees or live in other countries. Yeah, you know, put them in New York. You know, <laughs> nobody will notice. I mean, <laughs> I in fact I sometimes occasionally think of particularly difficult groups that we should just insert New York just to see what happens. <laughs> you know, maybe, you know, uh, well, for example, in um, Zimbabwe, for quite a while after uh, Mugabe uh, was running the show. He, he wasn't too bad. I mean, he was practical. Mm -hmm. But then he decided not to be anymore. He was in there for 10 years before he started doing the things that screwed up the economy in Zimbabwe. Yeah. Uh, 
And so it's been a while in South Africa, and they have been, you know, not perfect, but, you know, they it's possible to do business in South Africa. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to bring in the tax money, that sort of thing. Right. Uh, I mean, the economy isn't great, but it's still running, and it's at a level which is, you know, more sophisticated than anywhere else in Africa. Mm-hmm. But uh, they might change their minds. And then we could have... Then we could have the Boers move to New York, which I think would be interesting. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting for U.S. politics. What if you know something awful happens and all the white people <laughs> want to leave South Africa and Republicans figure, oh, they'll probably vote Republican, we'll let them in, and you'll probably have the Democrats saying, oh no, no, it wouldn't be a good cultural fit. They've got beliefs that are inconsistent with American values, so we can't let they, them in. Uh, uh, the Democrats are <laughs> almost infinitely for immigration, mm-hmm. but they weren't. They didn't, like when Saigon fell, they didn't want Vietnamese coming here uh-huh. for just the reason you said. Part, partly because of how they might vote, other reasons too. Uh-huh. Uh, but, uh, but right now, though, it's, it's got, the immigration thing has gotten, I don't know. It, you know, it, didn't, it, it wasn't, I, I was saying, you know, what is considered a standard left-wing thing today can be quite different. They're, they didn't used to say you know, that immigration is a basic right of everyone one on earth. That, that's a new thing. Yeah. In fact, a lot of it's quite new. Well, yeah, I mean, having a lot of immigrants can really reduce union power. So when the Democratic Party was more concerned about unions, I imagine they had to oppose large-scale immigration. Yeah, uh, that was part of it. And today, you know, A, unions are weak and not, they wouldn't be that useful if you were committed to them. Mm-hmm. And B, they don't, they don't even like them. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, particularly... Maybe a white-collar union, like teachers, there's maybe room for them. But uh, uh, they, uh, you know, they don't like people who work in a factory with their hands. Why they sit, I, mean, I don't, they haven't hurt me, but they, uh, I mean, the sort of people who run the New York Times or, let's say, at Ivy League University, mm-hmm. you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think they like them. I'm, I don't know if there's dislike, it's, it's more disinterest. Uh, could be that, but I think there's some dislike too. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, probably increasing with time. Uh, I, in a sense, there were foreshadowings of this a long time ago. There were uh, member, members of fairly radical groups, the SDS. Mm-hmm. Some of them were going, did things like they get a job at uh, at GM and try to radicalize the workers, which at which they had zero success. I, you know, particularly like they get beat up. Uh, well, my favorite version of the story, there was one guy who joined, you know, he got a, an assembly line job with that, and then he just ended up working there for the rest of his life. He said, you know, this is a pretty good job. You know, I, I got a house and a family and everything. So, you know, he was de-radicalized by the, uh, by the UAW. Uh, but uh, I think, I mean, you could, you could sort of say the first sign in this direction, well, there were sort of signs even with Roosevelt, but more with Adlite Stevenson, probably. Uh, you know, like, you know, university people should vote for this party. Mm-hmm. You know, we, of course, it's funny because, you know, I don't believe that Stevenson, like, voluntarily read a book in his adult life. Uh, but evidently, you know, maybe it was wearing glasses or something. You know, Eisenhower actually did, he read things like Carlyle. Uh, Sartre Resartus was his favorite book. And, you know, classical history and stuff. But he didn't go around talking about it because he, 
you know, only an idiot would try to point out how much smarter and better educated you were than the average voter. Yeah. Uh, oh, but he was. Uh, although people did know he had experience. That was not a secret. Uh, yes, well, yeah, he was certainly one of the most qualified presidents. Um, well, we can't really afford to teach many others the way he learned. No, so, you know, let's hope stage, stage World War Three, just so the president will finally, you know, make his, you know, make his bones. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think we did it for that. But you know, we, that, think of it as a, one of the somewhat one of the positive side effects of World War Two is at least we had a few people came out of it who knew something. My great 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 grandfather was driving a wagon with Abraham Lincoln in the back, going. Uh, he was going to make a speech right after Stephen Douglas had finished his speech in my hometown. <laughs> this was before they had the regularly scheduled debates. At first, Lincoln just showed up and, mm-hmm. you know, and spoke immediately afterward. They didn't yeah. had yet, you know, had a debate rule. And um, the Democrats said, "Well, that's unfair. Douglas is famous. You're stealing the crowd." So a bunch <laughs> of Democrats tried to block that wagon, which is why my great 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 grandfather had to clear away with his bullwhip. <laughs> <laughs> So you really have the Republican genes in you. I would think so at this point. <sighs> There's talk that I, President Trump is going to want to implement a, a major infrastructure building project. Do you have ideas for what, what do you think we should be building in terms of infrastructure? I have a few, but I more have questions. I think it's an interesting question. I, you know, There's a lot of things where there's every reason to think we've neglected. Uh, I mean, like the average bridge, the average dam, they're pretty old at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, there's clearly things that need to be, you know, and like it was sort of shown recently is with this Oroville Dam problems. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, California has not been in the mood to, you know, keeping steady maintenance going on is never exciting. Yeah, that's just boring economic activities. But it's, it's important. But, you know, there are certain kinds of, of uh, you know, things which might kind of fall in the infrastructure category or in a more general version, mm-hmm. that I might have some opinions about. I mean, I, like, I, I, I can think, I know this can be very important. I was thinking about the Erie Canal recently because I was helping one of my sons with an AP history course. Mm-hmm. And what, what it did was take, you know, most of the upper Midwest and make the land enormously more useful because the what you grew there could then be shipped somewhere. Right. Uh, as opposed to just... You know, it said you. It's great farmland in a lot of places, but the question is, how do you get it somewhere? Now, in the lower Mississippi Valley, there was already a way using the Mississippi, Ohio's, etc. system. Mm-hmm. You could ship things down to New Orleans. So, you know, so America was already kind of favored in this way without having to always. But uh, but in the northern parts, places like Michigan, uh, the northern parts of Ohio, mm-hmm. uh, in Indiana, you couldn't do that then. But this thing. You know, it really transformed the uh, northern part of the Midwest, and it made money, uh, and it made money, it made lots of New York more valuable, you know, the areas along the canal and its branches. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's This is really the thing that turned uh, New York into a huge city because it became an export hub for the, for the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, of course, the thing is, when you do things like that, there's a tendency to do the most sensible one first, and then the next most sensible one. I mean, you know, this right. is just economics, right? Right, right. And then after a while, you're doing the ones that don't make any sense at all, yeah. uh, particularly because there was competition in terms of other things coming up, like railroads. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, my, my favorite version of this, there's there's a river in, um, I think, Mississippi that comes up close to the Tennessee River. 
it's the Tom Bigby River, mm-hmm. and, and 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 partly because the uh, Erie Canal had been so successful, uh, you you could sell bonds. Usually, you sold those to people in Europe who had capital. The United States, you know, had opportunities, but not so much capital. So these days, Mississippi and Alabama were a territory. And the territorial legislature made a plan to build this Tennessee Tom Bigby Canal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they sold bonds, mostly in England. And then, from what I've read, they took the money from those bonds and they split it evenly among the members of the territorial legislature, and no one even picked up a spade. <laughs> <laughs> they stole every single dollar perfectly efficiently. Yeah. Uh, by the way, they did finish the Tennessee Tom Bigby Canal like in about 1985 or yeah. something. I don't know if it's used much, but it has been built. Uh, uh, but, you know, there is a possibility of these things having a huge payoff. But, well, like here's one. This sort of falls in the maintenance class, but it's not one usually mentioned. I mean, people talk about dams, fixing roads, bridges, and that's probably all reasonable and valid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, uh, like, it strikes me that, like, we're, we have uh, antibi- antibiotics are losing some of their punch. Yeah. And uh, that can get serious. If you eventually get an infection that they can't deal with, it can kill you. Uh, that's one of the things, that, that's part of the story that what happened to Henry. And it happens to a lot of people. You get antibiotic resistant. Uh, you know, particularly, there's a particular form, pretty common, uh, methicillin resistant uh, Staph aureus, MRSA, mm-hmm. kills a lot of people. So wait, um, Henry was your, your co-blogger and he uh, yes, died Henry recently? Ar- yes. Yeah. Yes, back uh, about, a, about a year ago. Mm-hmm. Uh and it happens to many people. Okay, the thing is there are ways, when things become resistant, there are ways of getting around it. Sometimes you come up with a completely new drug. Sometimes there are ways of reactivating an old drug. For example, if you know the mechanism that the uh, bacteria is using to, uh, to uh, get rid of the uh, antibiotic mm-hmm. or to deal with it, sometimes we can do something that interrupts the mechanism. Uh, there are drugs that are routinely used that work that way. They use something that by itself would not work, although it used to work by itself, but they add something else that jams the resistance mechanism of the bacteria, and you know they're both in the same pill, you take them, it works. But the thing is, when you have a bunch of antibiotics around, there doesn't seem like there's a need for a new one. Uh, and antibiotics, generally speaking, are not the preferred drug to make because you don't take too much. Like, if they work right, you just take a little bit and then you quit. You know, they're not a maintenance drug, usually. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can't charge a lot for them. Well, you can to some extent if it's new and on patent. Uh, but, uh, you know, you make more money with something that you take every day for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's probably true that our incentives for drug develop, you know, our economic incentives don't work as well for new antibiotics as they might. Mm-hmm. Um, the answer is, well, so what? Do it anyhow. I mean, you know, in other words, like in the right situation, you always have two reserves or three. Mm-hmm. Like it says, we stay on top of it. I said, if technically we can without enormous expense, and I think we can. We've been doing it for years. People say, well, but, you know, we, we can't do it because we can't make money at it. I said, well, NIH has a very big budget. Why don't, you know, if, if, if it is a case of market failure or perhaps people not thinking ahead enough, just do it anyhow. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can do it. I mean, penicillin was such a project. 
There could be others. So you think there's a lot of potential for developing new antibiotics? Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, there are things we know that we could make better use of. Like, we know that the great majority of all, say, soil bacteria, or most other bacteria, are things that we can't grow very well with standard culture methods, mm -hmm. you know, agar plates and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I know this sounds old-fashioned, but we could pay people to develop new culture methods. There's, there's, there's things that we don't do much anymore because they're, they're old-fashioned. Like, people are more likely to study molecular biology than they are microbiology nowadays. More money goes into it. But let me tell you, more utility comes out of microbiology than out of molecular biology. I mean, like, penicillin is worth more than all the gene scans that have ever been done mm -hmm. and, and, and will be done for, the next, for, for many years to come. And that's also true of streptomycin, and it's also true of uh, oreomycin. And, you know, there's, those things are very valuable. Mm -hmm. uh, so it strikes me that a reasonable plan, and, and maybe you could do this by, uh, uh, you know, by the right incentives to places like Merck, although I wouldn't bet on it, uh, is, is you make sure that you always have, in, that you stay ahead of antibiotic resistance. Now, that might also mean being careful about how you use antibiotics and not unnecessarily generating resistance of, uh, you know, there's ways to avoid that to some extent. Uh, uh, but, I mean, it's something we could do, at least I think so. And you'd like which to, is, that should be defined as part of our infrastructure as having yeah, but antibiotics it, in it, Isn't that a sense? I mean, if it's doable and if it's useful, and it's the sort of thing that if you don't keep on top of it, it gets out of hand. Yeah. Oh, then it's 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 not exactly infrastructure, but it's like it. Are, are we at risk now for some kind of um, um, bacteria to spread quickly and you know kill a few percent of the human population? Is that something that could come about suddenly? Maybe more likely with a virus than a bacteria. Uh, in general, it's harder to produce. Uh, uh, we don't have as many uh, wide spectrum. Uh, antiviral agents and so forth, although we have some things in those areas. Uh, maybe. I don't know. I mean, uh, traditionally, the very worst things have often been, well, not all. I mean, smallpox is viral. Mm -hmm. The Black Plague is a bacteria. They're, I guess they're both possible. But uh, uh, there is a way to think of it, which is that uh, the... Uh, See, the, the viral things tend to be kind of difficult because they're ending up using your own cellular machinery. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas bacteria, at least fairly often, we the drugs we use work because they, they play on the differences between the bacteria and us. For example, bacteria have a cell wall. Uh, human cells don't, or mammalian cells don't. You know, chordates don't, etc. Animals don't. So if we have something that interferes with the synthesis of the cell wall, you can end up with something that's quite toxic to the bacteria and may be close to totally harmless to humans. That, that's what you want in a drug. You want uh, a big ratio between the, uh, uh, you know, be, be, uh, between the, 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 the dose that starts to cause side effects and the effective dose. Like when penicillin first came out, the amount of it that uh, started to cause trouble was something like two million times more than the amount you needed. Uh, that is a good thing. I mean, yeah. also it means when they are resistant, they it takes a long time for them. Like suppose they get resistant, we say, okay, we'll use ten times more. They get resistance again, we'll use ten times more again. We've got, you know, we've got six factors of ten in our pocket. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but but that can often be the case. Uh, whereas if you use something 
this is why it's it's fairly you know it's not always possible, but very often we can find things that are extremely effective against bacteria and don't do you much harm at all. Now, uh, something which is a contrast, which is much the other way, is uh, uh, chemotherapeutic, chemotherapeutic agents against cancer. The problem is the differences between a cancer cell and a normal cell are not very big. Mm-hmm. They're both human cells. Right. One has just mutated in some way that it's taken the brakes off some growth processes, basically, mm-hmm. but they're still very much like... So the problem is when you take chemo, it's nearly as toxic to you to, or at least some of your normal cells, as it is to the cancer cells. So that's a problem. Uh, but And we have not found ways to completely, you know, that's why chemo is, when it, even when it does work, it, it tends to be a royal pain, even dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, now, sometimes they take advantage of the fact that a cancer cell is fast-growing, and then it may only hurt the cells you have that are fast-growing, which is at least not all of them. Right. So it tends to be bad for, you know, like your intestinal lining. It tends to be like your hair falls out because that's you know that's fairly fast growing you know the hair is synthesized fairly off fast. Well, your central nervous system is doesn't really uh, you you know you don't grow new neurons at least not much in, mm-hmm. in adulthood, and so you know the, the chemo may make you sick as a dog without making you an idiot, mm-hmm. uh, or you know ruining your mind. Mm-hmm. So that's that's why we can make it work at all mm-hmm. to some extent. And also, the other thing is you can find a way to make the treatment localized, which we can do sometimes. For example, with uh, thyroid, uh, we can use radioactive iodine, mm-hmm. which naturally concentrates in the thyroid. Uh, but in general, you know, we use these differences. And with bacteria, like, like let's suppose we had a new bacteria that every single standard antibiotic it was resistant to, and it would spread fairly easily, you know, with some... You know, we'd probably still find something to do because we have, for example, there, there are antibiotics we have we don't use anymore because we have better ones. But that doesn't mean that they've totally lost all their punch. It might be like, or, or because the side effects were too serious. There was a, a, an antibiotic called chloramphenicol mm-hmm. that people, they don't use it anymore because in a small fraction, like maybe 1% of the people who took it, it would wipe out, it would screw up your bone marrow, you know, at the point where you know, that was dangerous because your bone marrow was, was not working. You weren't making new white cells or something. So, you know, you were reluctant to use it. But suppose we had this new epidemic and it's, you know, the new black plague or something. I said, well, I'll use chloramphenicol because it's a lot better than the black death. Yeah. So we have a lot of things that we could kind of sort of use, but that are far from ideal, but they're there. You know, they're, they're, they're in the pharmacopoeia. So... I guess I'd be kind of surprised. I'd be less surprised with a virus because we don't have as many really good general things against uh, a virus. How worried should we be about you know bioterrorism in like you know once the terrorists figure out how to use CRISPR, will they have the potential of wiping out mankind? Probably not. I mean, well, like if you suppose you could edit the genes of a bacterium, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that you necessarily know what changes you wanted to make to cause so much trouble. Although, you know, maybe somebody knows some of this. I mean, there's certainly people who worked on this in the past, biowarfare, right. the people have worked on it, uh, although with much weaker tools than today. But, you know, terrorists, uh, it's hard to think of terrorists who have a lot of technical skill. Are not a lot of them engineers? Uh, well, I mean, they tend to, some of them are randomly been engineers, but I can think of a few examples in which that actually 
showed up and they ended up making something really fancy. I've heard of people projected it onto them, but I don't think it was true. You know, like, oh, what's his name? The Egyptian who came up with the, you know, the 9-11 plan. Oh, yeah, I can't recall. People have said, you know, I think he was a civil engineer. People mm-hmm. said, well, he, so he must have anticipated, you know, how the towers would fall. I said, no, he didn't. Mm-hmm. He's just a guy. He's not Superman. Uh, I don't think any of them knew. I mean, I think they the, the guys who planned it were probably happy to cause as much trouble as they did, but I doubt if they expected to collapse those buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you'd have to know a lot, probably, possibly more than the guys who built the buildings. Uh, uh, I, I heard people say that at the time. Well, this is this just shows how sophisticated they are. And I said, no, it doesn't. They're just idiots. <laughs> but they, but you know, in a sense, they were lucky and we were unlucky. It caused more trouble than it might have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, there was this uh, group in Japan, Om Shinriko. Right. They tried to make nerve gas. That's probably simpler. And I think they made some, but they didn't end up. <laughs> causing too much trouble. I think they killed a few people. Yeah, they didn't distribute it properly. Uh, But, uh, you know, the classic thing, you know, science fiction usually, science fiction often treats these things better than, you know, Beltway experts, if only because they're just, you know, better. Science fiction writers are just better people. But uh, there was uh, one in which uh, somebody, I think he's gotten mad at the IRA or something, Mm -hmm. just because they blew up his entire family in the story. And so he synthesizes some uh, virus that I think essentially sterilizes almost every guy on Earth. I think he was originally aiming at the Irish, but, you know, it, it you know, spread. Uh, it was called The White Plague. It was a book by Frank Herbert. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, there's only a very limited number of guys who can now sire children. And they are now pretty busy at that <laughs> since there are, you know, like a thousand women for every fertile man. And uh, I don't actually think this was a great idea on his part. Uh, but, but, you know, could he, well, can you think of anybody who was an expert in anything who's ever done anything very sophisticated along the lines of terrorism? Not very much. Mm-hmm. There's been a few sophisticated bomb makers, yeah. conventional bombs. Uh, but it's, you know, all these things are very rare. Of course, again, if we're talking something infectious, maybe once would be too much. Right. Uh, I don't really know. Well, you don't uh, think you could get to the point where it's it's so much ridiculously easier to create bioweapons than to stop them that an angry you know college student, if he's majoring in biology, could kill a billion people. Well, if it would help, you know, most biologists aren't really that good. <laughs> really, why uh, do you say that? But it only takes one. Why do I say that? Because it's true. Uh, I mean, the average. Well, all right. The average biologist. Well, the average biologist isn't doing anything very close to this, so you could forget them. Okay. All right. I mean, you know, somebody goes out and watches snakes in the Southwest. Okay. But, you know, what fraction? Uh, I mean, I'm trying to think. All right. I'll, I'll run through my idea. Of all the crazy, all the people I know or, or know from a distance, reading their mm-hmm. papers and so forth, in, uh, let's say, in human genetics. Mm-hmm. By the way, that's not the perfect man, but those are the people I mostly pay attention to. I don't know. I don't read as much about the guys who are doing bacterial genetics or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many of them could do something like this? I don't know anybody who knows enough to do it. Uh, but, but maybe you could take something existing and make it worse. That's probably easier than making something terrible from scratch. Oh, uh, what the Soviets did with smallpox, when they weaponized yeah, it. Yeah, some, something like that. Uh, maybe. Uh, 
Smallpox by itself, classical smallpox, would be pretty dangerous because increasingly people are not inoculated against it. Mm -hmm. They stopped inoculating people about 40-some years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was inoculated as a kid, but my kids aren't. Most people aren't nowadays. Mm -hmm. You know, must be six out of seven billion people haven't been inoculated or some number like that, five out of seven. I don't know exactly when it stopped everywhere. Uh, but I don't think anybody's inoculating for smallpox anymore. So young people are vulnerable. And with things like, you know, jet... Air, you know, fast transportation on jets, right. maybe it could spread rapidly. Yes, yeah, smallpox would be scary. Although, you know, it wouldn't kill everybody. It didn't before. Right. It would kill a lot of people, though. It would be pretty horrible. Uh, you know, and, and if you knew it was happening, could you stop it? I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, there are actually two questions there. One is, you know, given a decisive, intelligent person knowing what is currently known, you know, best practice, could you stop it? That's question one. The next question is, would we stop it? <laughs> You have a fraction of people will buckle up without government pressure, like you know fines, making it illegal, etc. No, about well, a quarter. That that's really shockingly low. There are a lot of things like that. I mean, that yeah. I, I mean, I, I've heard that before, and it just seems wearing a seatbelt is so obviously the right choice. That if people aren't doing that, what other messed up things are they not doing? I, I once had a girlfriend who would not wear a seatbelt. And I was trying to insist upon it while we were driving along the Santa Monica freeway. And she said, if you keep saying that, I'll just jump out of the car. Oh, God. And, but you were talking about how messed up in other ways these people are. Yeah. Well, actually, that that would be another story. <laughs> because well, she certainly was. Uh, but uh, actually, by the way, I, I said that because I didn't want her to get hurt, the, which I would also probably have said if I was just taking a little old lady to the drugstore because that's kind of my default. Uh, uh, that, you know, if it's up to me, I wouldn't want somebody to get hurt. But at any rate, yeah, people are crazy. Yeah. Uh, I, I tell my students that, you know, when you're, when you're judging someone to see if they can be your long-term mate, you can look for signals like whether they put a seatbelt on in the car, and that'll probably tell you of whether they'll do a good job saving for retirement. Uh, do we know what the correlations are? How, I, how good a signal is that? I, I'm just I'm, sort I'm of just guessing. Wondering. I don't. Yeah, I'm just well, guessing, but... It, You'd think so, but... Uh, usually everything good and sane is correlated with everything else good and sane. Uh, and some of them would... Uh, you know, I suppose if you were... Like if you were a mathematician and, uh, in 1935 and thought that Stalin was a great thing, it probably didn't matter too much to you, particularly if you were in England. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, if you've made the difference in England, and you too could have gotten, you know, sent off to a... You know, one of the things about England is... Even if we send you to a camp in the Shetland Islands, it's just not Siberia. No. It's just not the same. Uh, you won't. It's hard to freeze to death in England. I mean, it's possible, but mm -hmm. I mean, whereas you know, if it's in Italy, it's get well. In Italy, you go up into the mountains, you can freeze to death there. Uh, uh, but you know, I mean, what what do you do if you're trying to form an oppressive government in Monaco? Uh, yeah. I mean, if you're you're just there on the coast of the Mediterranean, and you know. What are you going to do? You have to have a refrigerator <laughs> to put people in. Yeah. Uh, but at uh, any rate, uh, yeah, it's one thing, you know, an irrational reaction to something could be just as important. As, like, uh, there's a lot of things that's perfectly possible to do, but you have to decide to do it. And if you're in a crazy mood, you might not. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can think of things like that. Uh, I don't, but, you know, I feel like I am not doing what I should if I. Like, I should be able to understand people, and if I don't agree with them, and, 
And that's true in some cases, but in other cases it can't. I figure it's a weakness on my end. Uh, what surprises so, you most about people? Say again? What surprises you most about other people? Well, I got used to them. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's not like I used to spend most of my time with Martians or something. So, you know, uh, uh, but I could say, you know, if we're talking political correctness, which I think is a stronger trend than it used to be, mm-hmm. and I don't know why, uh, why should it be a lot stronger today than it was in, you know, 1970? But it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not genetic change, or at least not much. I mean, you could say there's demographic changes in the United States. There's mm-hmm. different groups have grown or because of different birth rates or because of immigration. But, you know, I mean, and for example, if the great majority of the people doing such things were, uh, let's say, from Mexico, then you could explain it, except they're not. Mm-hmm. They're not real famous for, I mean, they show up, but they're not dominant or anything. So I, mean, I don't know why. Uh, there are things that have changed a lot, and I don't know why. And things that change in a way that seems to me kind of foolish. But, you know, I'm just probably an old fart. I could be wrong. Well, could it just uh, be reversion to the mean that in most periods in time, people don't support free speech? And so it's it's not surprising that if you have a lot of it, you'll go back. Well, you know, I haven't finished thinking about free speech and so forth. Like, I could easily imagine a, a world in which, you know, on a number of topics, uh, the established view was actually correct. And, for example, in a situation like that, free speech is kind of like mutations. They're almost all wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, let's suppose you lived in a world in which, uh, you know, people had worked really hard and had completely crushed uh, Von Dannekin. Wait, what's that? Oh, the guy who wrote Chariots of the Gods. Okay. Explaining oh. how, you know, you know, aliens built the pyramids and so forth. Okay. <laughs> or, or Velikovsky, who said that, uh, uh, you know, Venus was a comet, that he got expelled from Jupiter and all sorts of other nonsense. Mm-hmm. Like, I can think of all sorts of things, and I don't really see any real reason not to just take the guy out and <laughs> sew his mouth shut. Uh, or, like, what if reasonable people had dealt with Freud? Yeah. said, well, you're full of shit, man. And then Freudianism never happened. Well, but isn't we there, do. isn't there value in in sort of saying like why you don't think the Earth is flat and making someone say, okay, how do you know the moon landings weren't faked? What evidence do you have? Isn't it, isn't it useful to have people say these crazy things so you can at least think why you know what you know is true? Uh, mostly not. No, no. <laughs> For example, like you know, explaining that the world is not flat. Well, actually, yes, it. It can be illuminating in some cases to explain, you know, like you may have noticed that, you know, as this ship sails away, that first you don't see the lower part of the ship, mm-hmm. but the sail is the, the upper part is the last place to vanish, mm-hmm. and, you know, explaining this in terms of basic geometry. But even then, you get tired of explaining it over, <laughs> over, and over, and over. What was the other example you mentioned? Other uh, the moon landings were faked. Yeah, well, those people are just crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and so, for example... Uh, well, see, the usual idea says, well, we have to be, allow all opinions to be free because otherwise you know, we can't just say they're only the sensible ones because who can say what's sensible? Right. I said, well, well don't worry, I'll, I'll say it. Somebody's got to do it. I'll, I'll be perfectly happy to. And there'd be a lot of areas where there'd be a gray area, and I said, well, maybe it's sensible. Well, now, but, well Greg, you said but, you were religious, and what if your religion is defined as being nonsensible? Is that, are you willing to accept that? It's unlikely to happen if I'm doing the guy. I'm the guy defining it, isn't it? Well, that is very true. Yeah. 
There you go. <laughs> okay. But, uh, well, the point is, look, here's an operational question. Let's suppose I said, but that's just a bunch of crap. And I said, therefore, we will not pay people to teach it. Mm -hmm. Well, that would be a lot of things right now. Yeah. And suppose I had what was, uh, you know, an operational uh, uh, definition. A lot of people said, well, you know, like you, you're addressing subject X. Can you predict what will happen? Do you have a, you know, an efficient explanation of what has happened in the past? You know, can you post it? Can you predict? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, but there's whole disciplines in which they, you know, they don't even pretend to. Mm -hmm. Now, the next question is, why do we have them? I can't think of a good reason. People said, well, you've got to believe in free speech. I said, but I'm not absolutely sure I do. Now, I, I am not absolutely sure I don't. I'm thinking about it, okay? But, see, it sort of assumes there is nothing that we actually know. See, if you actually knew something, because, you know, there's no rule that you would have to have free speech about everything. Mm -hmm. Let's suppose you knew the answer to some question. Let's say that you knew that 2 plus 2 plus 4. Right. Now, now, would you actually have to let people say, well, maybe it's really 6, or maybe it's really a pig? <laughs> uh, people said, well, what about all the things you gain from people doing that? I said, I'm not convinced I've gained very much from that. And I also, people said, but if you have, you have to have free speech on all subjects. And I said, Why? I mean, what if there were some subjects we knew the answer to and others which it was sort of, you know, iffy, and there's others which truthfully you could say, you know, like I don't actually know how that tastes to you and it could easily taste different to you than it does to me, right? right. So there's things which really there is no single answer to. Anyhow, I'm just thinking about it. I, I mean, generally the people I see who are trying to inhibit speech typically have the, strikes to me, they're far closer to wrong than average. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why they're motivated. Yeah. Because they figure that, uh, you know, not always, but sometimes people are sensitive to people saying things because they're per the things they don't like to hear are certainly are strongly suspected to be true. Well, certainly, I mean, the insults that hurt us the most are the ones that we think might be true. Yeah, like what if I said that you were actually only three feet tall? Would you feel insulted? Yes, no, not at all. Right. I mean, mostly... Uh, uh, you know, they have something, they have some truth in them. Or they're at least, you know, they, maybe not truth, but at least plausibility. Mm -hmm. Like if it would hurt you in, in other people's eyes, perhaps. Right. But if I told other people you were three feet tall, they said, no, he isn't. Yeah. I mean, even, and if, even if they didn't know you, they'd say, it's really unlikely. Hardly anybody's three feet tall. Anyway, what <laughs> uh, belief or is that you shouldn't be punished for wrong ideas, which I've said, even if you didn't really try, because, you know, people don't. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you know, most of the people who who support, at least in things like politics, like, do you really think that, uh, uh, like, or or a lot of cultural type things, uh, do you think that uh, Freud tried hard to get at the truth? Yeah, I don't know enough you, about Freudian theory to answer that one. You know how many cases were supposedly the number of cases that he analyzed to develop Freudian theory? No. Eight. It's not very good. <laughs> Really, and, and there were people who knew better than that back then. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, there's other things like that. Uh, uh, anyhow, see, I'm not convinced there aren't a few things you can actually find the answer to, and I'm not absolutely sure that letting people go on and on and talk nonsense about them, or, I mean, by the way, there's different degrees. You could let them, you could pay for them, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, like, for example, let's suppose we had somebody who said that uh, women, you know, given the right, you know, given, like, comparable environmental things would be just as physically strong as men. Mm -hmm. Okay, and therefore we should get rid of, uh, of uh, 
separate sex sports because you're just women. You know, they don't try hard enough because they don't <laughs> think they have to compete with. with right. You know, there is somebody who is a sociologist. I think down in somewhere in the south. I'm trying to remember her name because I blogged about her, and I said I offer I I I volunteered to have you know you know put, settle this question once for all by me arm wrestling her. Mm-hmm. Okay, I probably beat her. Yeah. And that's ridiculous because she used to sort of be in some sort of athletics. She's youngish. I mean, you know, 30 or something. I'm 63. Would I beat her? Probably. <laughs> Why? Just looking at the numbers and the odds of upper body strength. I said, what she's saying isn't true. It's easy to prove it isn't true. I could prove it in one minute by arm wrestling her. Yeah. Okay? Or at least I'd... People said, oh, yeah, but secretly you've been working out. I said, well, it doesn't show. <laughs> Not much. Okay. Uh, what? Now, you can say, well, we have to let all speech be free because if we start picking and choosing, there's no end of it. You know, and maybe that's right. But I tell you, there's plenty of places where we do pick and choose uh, and where we don't necessarily try to subsidize every kind of madness. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we subsidize this, she gets paid. She gets paid with tax dollars, right? Yeah. She's at a public university. Uh, why should you pay for people who are easily shown to be nuts? Mm-hmm. And now, the, but we do. Now, I don't think they're. Um, well, actually, they're kind of important, actually, because it isn't just one or two things. It's quite a few things. Uh, uh, but we do. Uh, and you know, if you're a true free speech advocate, then well, that's all part of the package. I said. Okay, but you know, I'm not, am I absolutely convinced that the stupid parts of the package couldn't be separated out? Uh, I don't know. Maybe not. Uh, I mean, there. Uh, no. There'd be so much temptation to suppress the best ideas of your enemies. Well, that the point is, the only ideas I've seen uh, right now, I've seen suppressed, are ten ones that strike me as having a reasonable chance of being true, yeah. or either that ranging up to absolutely certain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if it's wrong, it's protected. Now, that's probably not true. There must be things that are wrong that are not currently fashionable and that would be opposed. I mean, like if somebody tried to bring back national socialism, the good Nazi kind, you know, at, at Smith, I think they'd probably oppose them. Yeah. That'd probably be or, or denying the Holocaust happened. That would probably, if people really thought you believed that, they would get very mad at you. Well, they don't know anything about the history, so it's, it's, it's a symbol for them, but they're still right because it did happen. But that's, you see, that's, it's not because it's a symbol, and it's not because I believe in free speech that I really think, I think that because I know the history, and I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Yeah. I, I, you know, anyhow, I, I am not, I, I'm not sure I'm right about this, and I'm not even sure when I think about it. Mm-hmm. I kind of wonder about all the things that we're supposed to protect that I would be perfectly happy with just trashing. Uh, like if I had a, uh, if, suppose I had a psychology professor and he was explaining that he believes in orgone energy, as, as Wilhelm Reich proclaimed. I said, I'd fire him. What is orgone energy? Well, there is no such thing. But it was, it was something that Wilhelm Reich talked about because he was bored with Peter Freudian or something. Mm-hmm. Suppose I had a guy who was uh, a devotee of, you know, I could cure mental illness by, you know, getting rid of these engrams. You know, in other words, it's a Scientology. Oh, oh okay. Yes. Well, but there's lots of things that are in the university today that are just as crazy. Mm-hmm. Why is it not right to get rid of them? Yeah. I mean, uh, 
But. I mean, I, I don't think there was any scientific basis to Freudian psychology. Why didn't we just close it down? Mm -hmm. There's still a bit of it left. And most of the things that replaced it aren't valid either. Yeah, it's, it's just impossible almost to find someone you can trust to decide, you know, what, what can't be That's what said. I'm volunteering for. Someone's well, going to do it. And, and it by the way, there's a way to limit the impact. You just let, give me a big stick. I can only be in one place at once. I'll just walk around and I'll say, hey, you're an idiot. And I'll whap them. That's I, how they quit. I think, though, realistically, it's far more likely that, that you would be banned and the things you believe in would be banned from... College campuses. They're, they're already banned. How, what, what's my? I don't have to worry about. Well, they couldn't access your blog from from college campuses or something. Uh, actually, I've never. I, th I think it's hard to get to in China, but that's true of lots of things. Yeah. Uh, the. Uh, but but anyhow, the point is. I mean, of course, you know, the question is whether, like, you can imagine a society where people were, you know, provably right on a fair number of things. I mean, we already are in some things. Like, you usually don't have electrical engineers talking about how there's really no such thing as electrical current or something. Right. Okay, we have, uh, and basically anything that's strongly empirical, you should be able to get to that point, you'd think. Mm -hmm. But 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 we often don't. Um, and, um, I mean, if we had somebody who had his own non-standard electrical engineering that was just made up nonsense, they'd fire him. Not if he had tenure, probably. They just wouldn't decide. Uh, they, they'd have him teach a stats class. Rather than engineering, we could do research. He could be involved with research on Alzheimer's or something. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes, I I could think of professors like that sometimes, and sometimes I felt sorry for them because they were clearly past it. Uh -huh. And uh, and sometimes, you know, it's embarrassing when they drop dead in the class and everything. But but the point, the point is, if it's possible to know anything, then in that area, it's not absolutely clear that. Uh, Unlimited free speech is always the right answer. Or maybe it is anyhow. I don't know. As I said, I haven't really made up my mind on it. Uh, but uh, I can think of whole philosophical traditions and ideological traditions that I don't think were worth anything at all, but, ever. I mean, not to needle you about this, but uh, people like me, atheists like me, would say, okay, a huge category is all religion. That's clearly false, and, you know, that should... We should just get rid of that if we're going to get rid of anything, and that's done a lot well, of harm. If you were in power, you probably would. Well, no, I hopefully I would still respect free speech, even if I actually had power. I'll never will, but if I had it, hopefully I would keep that well, value. Uh, but <laughs> uh, I would say that history does not support your your position, because like you know, one of the big advantages that new atheists have is that the Soviet Union fell. Yeah. Yeah, uh, they certainly killed a lot of people. That was certainly a horrible example of what atheists can do. They made the Spanish Inquisition look like an ice cream social. Yes, they they most certainly did. The number of people killed in the Spanish Inquisition, by the way, I'm not actually calling for a new Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Tempt, tempting, again, even though everyone expects that. But uh, but it killed like about 4,000 people over a couple hundred years. That's mm -hmm. pretty different, right? Yes. But that's one of the things the new atheists going for them is that they don't get to do what they'd like. Because if they did, everybody would hate them. Even other atheists, probably. Uh, I mean, judging from track records in the past. Mm -hmm. Why? Why is? I, there's another thing, which is militant Islam, uh, which they can, you know, say all religion is like that. Although, you know, militant Islam looks pretty good compared to communism. Uh, yeah, that that is certainly true. At least in some ways. I mean, you know, they're militarily so ineffective; they're not really causing people huge amounts of trouble compared to what you know the Red Army could do or something. Mm -hmm. uh, they aren't very good at building atomic bombs, although a couple of them are managed. 
Yeah. Uh, the uh, now there might be a few things in which they're worse, but you know they, uh, you know people talk about how war, you know I, I that uh, you know I have no real brief for militant Islam to put it mildly, <laughs> but I I have probably more historical perspective than most people talking about it. So when people talk about the unique their unique ability for violence. Mm -hmm. I said, if there's somebody alive who can remember World War II, and there are, not many, but there still are, or for that matter, even the Korean War, or Vietnam, yeah. I could go down the list. You, you know, there's other people than Muslims who show some pretty good talent for violence. Yeah, the West got like to be that. dominant by being extraordinarily good at violence. Yeah, I mean, what I would mean the United States and England and France and Germany mm -hmm. and Russia and, you know, even the Italy is good at these things compared to the Muslims. Mm -hmm. And they stink. Yeah. I mean, the Belgians are better than they are. That You know, everybody's better. They're terrible at it. Yeah. Uh, and, and I have people talking about them. I said, well, there's this huge strategic threat. I said, well, you know. Uh, if we lay down and let them walk over us until the end of time, yes, they would be. But that's mm -hmm. about the only way for it to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and there, and maybe that will happen because we are in a rather strange place. But you know, if you wanted to, it wouldn't happen. It's not something they could make happen. You know, like how many uh, well, how many Syrian refugees could force their way into Germany if the Germans didn't want them there? I said, oh, I'm sure that a couple people would sneak past, but basically not. Right, and you know, people talk about all this in a very strange way. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to somebody who uh, was uh, a reader of my blog and uh, was interested in some things I said, and anyhow, uh, used them to make all kinds of money on this on the exchange uh, <laughs> in Singapore. And uh, I, uh, but I was hearing he was telling me about Singapore, which I've never been. I would find it interesting, I think, except it's too hot hmm. and humid. Uh, but you have to go, you have to sign a note and go to a pharmacy to get chewing gum. <laughs> Why? Because, you know, like, I am probably more for the government telling you what to do when the answer is known, as it is in some cases. Mm -hmm. And again, this is analogous to free speech. Why shouldn't we let people choose whether to wear a seatbelt, for example? I said, why? Well, because all that means is we'll get more dead people. It's a freedom that has no practical use except for you to get your head smashed in, right? Yeah. Okay, well, you're not a true libertarian. A true libertarian was for it even if it smashes in your head, right? Uh, yes, although the, the true libertarian would also say that would be bundled with, you know, the restrictions on developments of drugs and all of these other technologies. So, yes, sometimes the government gets it right, but the cost is they'll kill a lot of people other ways. So it's all sort oh. of a, there's, you know, there's imperfections everywhere, and you've got to pick. You could actually pick a mix, where we did what made sense in each case, but that would be too weird. Well, that would that be too would, hard to no find one. the person to pick the mix. It's easier to have a simple rule of government doesn't tell me what to do unless I'm hurting other people. Well, we've already have major exceptions. Oh, yeah, we're not, we're very far from, any, from being a libertarian democracy. But a libertarian well, I mean, would say well, that would be better for most people. Well, oh, by the way, that's another thing that's changed over the years. Uh, although it's always been true that judicial review was was political, it also didn't happen constantly, and they weren't as obvious about it back in in, in the 19th century, for example. Oh, that's right, they, true. They would say things, well, this is unconstitutional. I said, why? Because I feel like it, which is the, right now they're pretty open about it. Yeah. Every and, and that means that 
in the foreseeable future, judicial review is going to end because it's it's gotten too silly. I mean, uh, if, I don't know about that. I mean, it seems pretty it. entrenched. It's well, not necessarily. Depends how stupid they get. Yeah. If they get stupid enough, people say, "Well, I guess we'll just have to quit doing this." I mean, because it, it hasn't made any sense in my lifetime. Yeah. Like ever. Uh, well, of course, we don't yeah. know what the government would have tried to do absent judicial review. We don't know how far they would have gone in curtailing the First Amendment well, if they knew the court uh, wouldn't slap them down. That's hard to say. Uh, but, uh, you see, it doesn't... Well, you know, like one of the things about free speech, and you know, it's a complicated question. I don't pretend I'd have the perfect answers. But the whole thing is getting strange when the country's going crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of assumes you're not. Uh, what was it? Uh, John Stuart Mill said, well, who has ever seen... You know, the worst case uh, win when, when people were free to debate. I said, I've seen it all the time. Yeah. He was, you know, see, he had this assumption that this there was util- there was more utility in this than actually turned out to be true. I've, heard, I've seen other people say things like that. I was reading Machiavelli. Mm-hmm. He was talking about the wonders of Republic. This is in not in The Prince, but in the discourses. He was saying, you know, Republic could always elect somebody competent. You know, you don't, you can't have that with a monarchy. You know, you can just have an endless string of competent people. You know, all else equal, the republic would always dominate in the long run because it has long-term logic. You know, it had competent leadership. I said, yeah, that that's fun. You're a funny man, Mister Machiavelli, because that isn't what actually happens. No, but uh, I don't know if we compete with hereditary leadership. Well, I think the way I look at it is, government can generally do far more harm than good, and so it's better to avoid the worst cases. And That's not true. You don't, really? You don't think so? No, it's, it's perfectly capable of going all the way to making you dead, either by not doing something or by doing something. Both of them, that's about as far as it goes. Yeah, but it, so, it, it's more likely to have harm through horrible government than it is, you know, to have harm because you had a mediocre government that didn't do what it should have done, I would say. So, uh, I wouldn't. It depends what sort of neighbors you have. I mean, like, which is better? You know, a government that can oppress you and that can stop the Mongols, or mm-hmm. one that doesn't and can't. Remember, Mongols were a real part of history. Yes. And they, or, you know, and there are other extremely unpleasant... You know, the Turks weren't a whole lot of fun when they showed up. No. And uh, I think it's not necessarily true. Uh, I mean, for example, if you just talk about all the... Many times people had to worry about not just the Mongols, but other nomads out of Central Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, that smashed your civilization. Yeah. You kind of had to have something that could stand up to it. Or you bribe uh, them, or just you pay tribute. and Or with the Mongols, I mean, you surrender quickly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, maybe that'll work. Uh, well, it's better uh, than the alternative, usually. It's not better than the alternative of having a government that's up to resisting them. Continuing our discussion on the value of free speech, Greg and I now discuss whether restrictions on freedom of speech help contribute to the spread of the Spanish flu. About the Spanish flu, I mean, we handled that terribly in part because of restrictions on free speech, where they decided, oh, we won't, we'll, we'll hide the fact that there's this flu. We'll, we'll still send, you know, kids to, to boot camp. They'll get the flu, then we'll, we'll ship them over the world. I mean, it would have been far better if papers were allowed to, had been allowed to report honestly, hey, there's this horrible disease going around. And, you know, you, you let your son go off to fight. There's a chance he'll die of it. Uh, I know something about that. What you're saying is not entirely wrong, but it's more complicated than that. Okay. One thing is, well, since I, 
I know that story pretty well. One thing is nobody knew what to do about it at all. Nothing. Nobody knew anything to do. We were trying. It was the sort of thing that in the future we got to know better, mm-hmm. but uh, in the not too distant future after that time, but people did not know anything useful to do about it at all. They did not. They came up with an incorrect cause. They mm-hmm. blamed some bacteria that was not the right one. I mean, it's a virus anyhow. They they did not have any useful. They have supportive therapy. I mean, look, if yeah. people keep feeding you and keep you warm, that's helpful. But you know, medicine itself. They didn't have anything to offer. We didn't know enough. But shouldn't uh, the United States, wouldn't the same thing to have been to say, all right, well, we're just not going to be fighting for a while now. We'll, we'll just send you money because this just isn't worth it to us. Uh, I mean, you did you know, know that wars caused... World War One. Well, just for when, the United States. I mean, I, Europe had different calculations, but shouldn't Woodward Wilson have said, all right, sorry, we're, we're not doing this now. It's, just, it's not worth it for us because wars clearly you know, spread disease. And I don't know that... See, this one was one that caught pretty easily. Since it got to everywhere on Earth, yeah. with one or two exceptions, you have, can't blame war for spreading it in South America, for example, because there wasn't, at that time, any wars in South America. But it got to every part of South America. Mm-hmm. So, by the way, there could be other cases where you were correct. Mm-hmm. But in this case, uh, and there are some who think it's possible that it evolved this high virulence, like Paul Ewald thought, that, you know, that perhaps being in the trenches was a, case, was a situation that favored high virulence. And although I don't think that's, I don't think we're at all clear that that's the case, but it was, you could imagine that war certainly have spread diseases, but this one was so good at spreading, it didn't need a war. I say that since it, it managed in many places where there was no war. Okay. okay. But I, I can tell you one story that goes the other way, which is interesting. Uh, I blogged about this too. Uh, American Samoa. Mm-hmm. Was a uh, you know that story? Uh, I remember your blog post on it. So why don't you yes, go ahead? Okay. Uh, the point was that American Samoa was an American colony, basically of the Navy, uh, and we we were sort of you know benignly ran the place. We did we weren't stealing from the locals. We we weren't particularly hostile to them. It was an occasional Navy ship would come there to get supplies. That was it. We had uh, a Navy officer, a retired Navy officer, been called up to become the governor of American Samoa, and we had certain advantages. We had uh, radio, early radio, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, Morse code type radio. And so they they heard about this before it came. And so he knew that Polynesians are more vulnerable than average to this sort of thing, having been populations that were pretty isolated <laughs> from the world for a long time. Mm-hmm. And they had had other flu epidemics that were, you know, unusually serious. So he, can, he talked to the local chiefs, and they blockaded themselves. They said... No outside ship will land until this is over, mm-hmm. and they didn't. Uh, and this, there were neighboring islands, uh, uh, West Samoa, mm-hmm. which had had been German, had been recently grabbed by the uh, Australians and New Zealanders, and they were close enough that they often had people go back and forth in canoes, they intermarried and so forth. But they said no one from West Samoa can come here until this is over. Okay, or anywhere else, no one. Now there was a ship coming from Australia that was, you know, doing sort of a standard trade route that went from island to island Pacific, and it, it spread the flu accidentally to all of them. Mm-hmm. And the last one it visited was West Samoa, and West, the, the guy running West Samoa acted differently than that. That Navy commander, you know, he didn't have instructions from Washington. He just said, "What is, what do I need to do to try 
to preserve the island I run. And so he did something, and they got zero cases. One of, there's only like two places in the world that were missed by it. One was American Samoa. The other is West Iceland, probably because nobody actually goes there. <laughs> okay, but West Samoa did get it, and they had the highest death rate in the world. Uh-huh. Something like 25 to 30 percent of the people were killed. But at least they weren't oppressed. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, by the way. This guy was an unusually favorable situation. He'd, he could basically do what he wanted. Nobody was much telling him what to do. And he had simple motives. He just wanted to make things the best, be the best they could and not see a lot of dead people all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, uh, and the locals were with him, and he talked to them. They, you know, Because if they tried to disobey his order, they probably would have succeeded. But he had the local chiefs with him. They had seen similar things, not as bad, but they'd seen it, and they were aware, and they cooperated, and it all worked. He also was advantaged. He was, he had the advantage. We had the communications that could get there before the disease could. Mm-hmm. Which probably wouldn't have been true in, say, 1850 or something. Right. right. Uh, okay. So he did everything right, and he didn't lose a guy. And they lost 25 30% of the population in the neighboring islands. Uh now, this is an unusually favorable situation because you already know because it's already happened to other places. Mm-hmm. You don't always know that. But, of course, you know that's what we have, theoretically, that's what we have history books for, is that, you know, that, you know a, a government can sometimes avoid problems or make them smaller. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, it, and it wasn't a government that spent most of its time spending every moment trying to tell you exactly how you're supposed to cut your fingernails or anything. You know, they used this power only in the cases where it seemed reasonable. Okay. They weren't a thoroughgoing authoritarian government. They were just somebody who had some sense and could, when he wanted to, you know, tell people what to do. He didn't spend most of his time doing much of anything. I mean, they were doing, you know, moderately progressive things like, you know, let's see if we can get a school going, you know, stuff like that. Nothing horrible. Okay. Now, at the end of it, uh, the people in West Samoa wanted to make, proclaim him a god, (laughs) which he did not agree with. He didn't think that was right. Uh, But they did put a statue up to it. And naturally, he's forgotten because, you know, the guy who prevents a problem, that's so, that's almost non-human, certainly against the whole spirit of America today. Uh, But uh, that's, that's about as good as it gets. Uh, uh, but uh, there have been people who at least you know made enough of a military defense that they kept some deep, deep threat to their country from happening. That has happened occasionally, mm-hmm. and that's worth something. But again, uh, you know, I know some of the more interesting libertarian historical experiments. Uh, you ever read about uh, you know the Icelandic Republic? Uh, no. Well, uh, for a long time they had as loose a government as anybody has ever had, at least who could read, I mean, where there's any records thereof. Uh, they had a, they had a parliament that met once a year, the all thing. Mm-hmm. They would pass laws, and then people were just supposed to, they didn't have any means of enforcing them at all. I mean, they didn't have cops, they didn't have a military. Mm-hmm. But it would be, uh, uh, you'd say, well, there's there's a guy who's really versed in those laws, we'll go for it, go to him, uh, to help decide who really owns this farm. Although after a while, there was a strange tendency for him 
to be the guy who ended up owning the farm after he had decided the legal case. Uh, I've seen lawyers do this today, by the way. Uh, but they had almost no state. Very little. Uh, they didn't have a militia. They didn't have an army. They didn't have cops. Uh, and there are people... And by the way, they kind of sort of halfway made it work, not perfectly, uh, but for a couple hundred years. But it turned out that when anybody else anywhere, even who wasn't terribly powerful, tried to stick their finger in, to uh, which was basically the kingdom of Norway, you couldn't stop them. Because right. you, they, they weren't good at protecting themselves from others. You know, non-states are not good at protecting themselves from states. And they ended up as a dependency of the kingdom of Norway. Of Norway, which actually did them harm because they had to pay taxes and things, which was, you know, it's not the end of the world. But the problem is, they, you know, Iceland is a poor place. You, they couldn't afford very much of this, and it, it made life more difficult for them. You, even the, the taxes that probably wouldn't have seemed extraordinarily high in places like France were kind of hard to pay in places like Iceland, which is a, you know, a, not a very productive region. Although it might have been cheaper than having their own government that had an army and having, you know, be strong enough to defend yourself against outsiders. They might not have been able to be strong right. enough to defend themselves against outsiders. I mean, again, that's a function of the size and the productivity yeah. of, uh, of, the, of the kind of agriculture they had, which was basically raising sheep. Uh, uh, but, uh, and, and by the way, there's no sign they ever got any actual protection. I mean, at one point, these guys were actually raided by Algerian slave raiders. I don't think the Norwegians did anything useful about it uh -huh. uh, but you know what would they do have ships hovering around iceland all the time for hundreds of years uh it's not an easy thing to do but uh uh, uh i don't you see the ideologies you know that's a package you say i have these simple rules because it's it's partly because it's easier than trying to remember a bunch of complicated heuristics and facts mm -hmm. but i'm not absolutely sure you know, like no real country is run strictly according to an ideology, and I'm not absolutely sure you need one at all. Like, if I had this rule, I said, well, you know, I had a whole set of rules. Like, we've some things were actually pretty confident. We figured out the answers. We do what works there. And we do a different thing that works in this other situation. There's no actual rule that says we have to have, you know, like people said, well, logically, if we allow X, we have to allow Y, even though Y is obviously stupid, which you hear a lot, but we don't. We don't have to do anything like that at all. He said, well, you know, but what if we had a bunch of heuristics? This is kind of how, uh, I'm trying to remember, there's this guy who is sort of uh, Warren Buffett's right-hand man. What's his name? Oh, Charlie Munger. Yeah. He believes in lots of heuristics. He doesn't believe in a single overarching theory. Mm -hmm. There's no reason you have to run it. But, and, you know, this is thinking a little bit more the way, you know, and America has a, has a strong dose of this, mm -hmm. you know, common law and so forth. You don't really have to. Well, or I was the example. I was uh, reading, you know, in the Confederacy, the uh, they didn't want to have blacks as soldiers. And one of the reasons they said, well, our whole theory uh, uh, of you know of our society, if 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 they make good soldiers, then our theory is wrong. Right. I'm thinking, oh, don't you want to find out? <laughs> uh, wouldn't you like to know if it's wrong? Uh, and besides, you're losing. Why not try? You can always change your mind later. Uh, by the way, there's actually another factor which is quite possibly more important. Uh, historically, when you have sort of a oppressed or serf class and then you let them participate in the army, they're a lot more likely to successfully revolt later. 
Yeah, it didn't work well in Haiti when you armed the people you were trying to oppress. Oh God, that one. That one was a, that was really bad. Yes, but I was, bad as it can but, get. But, but the the Tommies did that sometimes. The Tommies normally they had oh. Greeks and um, you know uh, Macedonians mm-hmm. and, merc- and mercenaries again, mainly from Greece, who were the army of the okay. Tommies. Uh, but when they got really pressed, once they said, "Well, we need more," and when they trained a bunch of Egyptians, they won the battle. But then they had uh, revolts for the next twenty years. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a consideration. But, but, for example, Peter says, but, you know, our basic axiom is this. You don't have to have axioms. Yeah, you can try to do it practical. Just, you can just, you can do that all the, that, of course, that itself is an axiom, but it's a rather flexible one. And so, you know, why don't we see what works? Uh, or you can throw in a couple of those. Like, let's try not to be really nasty. There, there's two. I, I could go a long <laughs> way with those. Uh, uh, so, for example, I said, like, what if I found... Uh, well, like, you know, a real libertarian would say, well, surely the free market should solve X. I said, what if it never has in the last 2,000 years? Yeah, I think, I mean... Wouldn't that be a problem? Or, or... There's sort of pure libertarians, but at least I'm a more practical libertarian where I know markets aren't very good at, at solving certain kind of problems like national defense or, or pollution. Hey, and... if they were, I, I, that'd be fine by me. I don't care. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, for example, if we got... Uh, I have read science fiction stories set in a pure libertarian situation mm-hmm. where you had a company called the U.S. Air Force. It's mm-hmm. just it's it's called that for sentimental reasons, but you know you have to subscribe to it. And you know if somebody tries to invade you, they you know fly a few jets over and nuke them or something. Mm-hmm. I mean it was, uh, but uh, I didn't actually believe that it was very likely to work, but it made for an interesting story. But if it did work, hey, you know why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know. Uh, but there's lots of things in which people say that sort of thing, saying, well, you know, if we logically, we do X, we must logically do Y. I said, no, we don't. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, people said, well, aren't we a proposition nation? I said, well, I don't subscribe to very many propositions. So I guess I'm not really a, a U.S. citizen. Well, I thought I was. <laughs> uh, I said, and, you know, maybe I, you know, maybe my ancestors fought in the revolution and the civil war and, you know, and helped, you know, in World War II, but that doesn't mean we're real because it's believing in whatever crap some editorial writer for the Wall Street Journal wrote. That's what's the real test, right? <laughs> it's whether you agree with Brett Stevens. It's not whether you've ever done anything useful in your life. Yeah. Uh, well, are, are there are there um, public intellectuals or reporters that you really like? That's an interesting question. There's this dead guy. Uh, <laughs> he was a libertarian, by the way. Uh, uh, Warren something or other. He used. I remember he would talk about how uh, you know, a lot of our restrictions on uh, the trucking industry were just stupid. Mm-hmm. We're ending up with things like the trucks that were only full, half full going one way and empty coming back oh, yeah. because of the of the uh, you know the ICC regulations. And by the way, we did liberalize a lot of those. Yes, we got rid of uh, most of them. And then I believe he, uh, I think he died of something because he was a Christian scientist and didn't believe in antibiotics. Anyway, but I liked him. Uh, but that's an interesting question. How many columnists, uh, public intellectuals, do I think are, you know, good people? They don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be right all the time. But you know, where you feel like you know they're probably trying, and occasionally they do something good. Mm-hmm. Hardly any. <laughs> I, I can think of very few that I think much of. Uh, by my standards, most of them don't know much, and most of them aren't very honest. And I actually. Could go on and on about how despicable most of them are. 
I, I don't think much of most of them. Uh, throw well, up an example, and I'll see if I actually hate him or not. All right. Well, I mean, my, my current favorite is just Scott Alexander, who writes at Slate Star Codex. I can read him. I think he's nuts, but I can read him. You think he's nuts? Why do you yeah. think he's nuts? Well, why do I think he's nuts? Um, I don't mean that in a bad way. Oh, well, uh, okay. There are worse nuts. Uh, I think that uh, a lot of his basic assumptions, which are kind of libertarian-ish, are probably not correct mm-hmm. in terms of, like, if you do X, will it have this consequence? The answer is probably no. I think that, uh, you know, in my mind, you can, to an extent, take an ideology and you can factor it into um, a bunch of statements about facts and how things work, a model of some sort, mm-hmm. and the other one is preferences. But I don't see much point in arguing about preferences. I could tell people, well, I don't have the same preferences, or I think if you pursue those preferences, your feet will fall off or something. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, if they're their preferences, hey, you know, I can't tell them they don't like it. But on the t- as far as the models go, they're almost all pretty pretty worthless. I mean, they're not entirely worthless. I mean, a lot of people have an ideology saying, you know, if I, you know, if I jump off a cliff, I'll fall to the bottom. But not that's not universally agreed with. But, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't think that they work very well. Uh, I remember. Uh, I think that uh, you know various ideologies about, uh, oh, you know, if we just lower taxes a lot, we'll have a lot faster economic growth. Well, that didn't happen. And a lot of people are still sure that it would, even though it did not happen. We've tried for about 30 years, for going on 40, mm-hmm. but it did not happen. Well, we did get you know a lot higher growth rates under Reagan. It's hard to figure out causation and whether it was tax not cuts. Not higher than the 60s or 50s, no. Well, but a lot of things changed. I mean, it's hard to sort of know and that's an what would happen. Damn near anything. But I'll tell you, the trend hasn't been good. No, certainly uh, recently it, it hasn't. I mean, we've had horrible growth rates. Uh, what's gotten even worse? Yeah. Yes. Uh, but Scott Alexander. Uh, um, he wouldn't be the worst on my list. <laughs> and I and I am interested. He was talking about this. I, I did not get to read all of it. His recent stuff about cost disease strikes yeah. me as something I need to think more about. I thought about it some. But, uh, I mean, if you... Like, I think everybody who's ever involved even a little bit with less wrong is all crazy. Really? Well, I've been involved with it, so... Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Why do you think that they're that we're crazy? Uh, genetics, probably. Okay. Well, but the, how we manifest this craziness in our writings, our uh, actions. Well, this is probably not you, but an awful lot of those people tend to pick unconventional social relationships that I think statistically are not likely to work out very well in the long run. Um. <laughs> Yeah, it, first of all, it, it isn't me. I do have a conventional relationship. I, I know that. Uh, but yes, I should say that. Be clear about that. Um, but I mean, okay, the the best argument for them being not silly is to say, look, they're they're trying to promote efficient charity. To say, if you're going to give money to a charity, like spend money providing malaria nets to people in Africa rather than helping you know your local art museum, and that's. You know, what was the thing you said in Africa? Well, if you're going to do, donate money to charity, you should try to do the most good you can with your charitable dollars. So donating to an organization that provides malaria nets, anti-malaria nets to people in Africa, is much better than donating to your local art museum. Um, well, I thought about... I don't know if that's a new thought. I mean, I thought about ways to well, make effective charity long ago, and yet far more sophisticated than that. 
you what I would suggest what you really want to invest in? Uh, what? Factor productivity. Okay, well, that you could claim, I mean, that would certainly help factor productivity in Africa, the human factor of productivity. That's, but that's, fewer a single, that's, a single, uh, that's a single input. I mean, the point is, if you figure out, if you figured out a better way to make nets, or if you figured mm -hmm. a bit, you know, that's better than any, unless unless you're Gates and you just throw, you know, a billion dollars right. worth of malaria nets. But, you know, again, uh, not even just teaching a guy to fish, inventing fishing. But if you're, if you're a 30-year-old computer programmer at Google, and you know you're not no, gonna. You're, you're hopeless anyhow. No, but I no, mean you're no, just no, gonna no, pick no. a charity, and there are there isn't one of those charities that you're suggesting donating to the Against Malaria Foundation is a very good thing, and that's the kind of thing Less Wrong is trying to promote. Where. And that's. I mean, I, I can think of ways. Like I, I put more money. I'd say, all right, we'll start a GoFundMe, and we'll put more money into classical microbiology. Yeah. That's likely to be more. The point is, you need to find out. You need to know more about. Where, where things stick, where they hurt, and where they don't. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, for example, uh, of course, a lot of the things, also you have to know about all the things that you can't do. Yeah, and that's also a, a tough thing to do. One advantage of a charity that just provides anti-malaria nets is that it's really easy to see. Is it actually doing it? There, you could do worse. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing that. But, uh, but I said... What you really want to do is find something with real leverage, which would eventually mean factor productivity, perhaps particularly in areas involving human health. But, you know, you do better. You know, the guy who comes up with penicillin is worth mm -hmm. more than any given practitioner. Not that I'm, not that I'm dissing the practitioners. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying, would you come up with a better way? Right. Or, uh, or you know, go another step. Come up with a better way of coming up with better ways. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, these guys, they think they're pretty smart. Why don't they... Why aren't they thinking about it as hard as I am? Well, I, don't think, I hardly think about it at all. I mean, the, the leaders of Less Wrong are involved with trying to create friendly artificial intelligence, and their goal is to try to you know create an intelligence that'll basically solve all In of our what problems. Way? I mean, are they writing the programs? Uh, they're they're working on right. Well, they're working on the basic math right now. And they're also trying to generate publicity, and they have had some effect. I think people like you know Elon Musk. And Bill Gates have talked about this, and probably in part because of the efforts to promote, you know, talk about the dangers of unfriendly AI. Bill Joy was talking about it a long time before that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, these aren't the only people who've done it, but they, they have had some effect. They've had conferences. They, they, they've had conferences with Elon Musk, actually. And the well, right answer might well be to just ban it. Yeah, well, yes, I, I certainly agree with that, but it's hard to ban it worldwide. And no, it isn't. Well, how do we get the Chinese to ban it? We, we, most of them don't even have a lot of government. You could do it. Just explain. Oh. Anytime you do it, you know, we'll take all your money. Mm -hmm. We'll land on you like a ton of bricks. We'll shoot you. It's easy. I know. I, I agree with that position. I'm getting scared enough about um, AI that I think it might be worth foregoing the benefits. But that takes a lot of political will to say, okay, we're going to trash these $100 billion industries because of a fear of... Well, there aren't any $100 billion industries that depend exclusively on it yet. Well, you, you'd really... I mean, you'd really want to stop making computer chips getting better and better. You'd want to stop a lot of um, research into AI, and there's a lot of... There's so much money in it. You'd want to... You know, you'd be hurting your military if you don't continue research. So there'd be a huge uh, cost, and it, it might... I think it very easily could be worth it. But... I don't know. I mean... An awful lot of people know all the reasons why things can't be done, but mm -hmm. often they're wrong. And now, and and also they know a lot of the reasons things are easy to be done, and often they're wrong there too. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I, I doubt if it's all that hard. To, I'm not saying it's necessarily the right thing to do, but you know, we impress all kinds of knowledge. What would be so hard about a little bit more? Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, you you try to find the real details of uh, that let you build a hydrogen bomb. They're not easy to find. Mm-hmm. They don't want you to know, and you don't know. And mm-hmm. That's okay by me. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, um. I don't know. I mean, they just struck me as wacky uh, and, and not very good. Uh, uh, I mean, like, one of the signs that you're getting up to the point where you can do something useful is you start coming up with, you know, you've dug enough into a field that you can come up with some predictions that come right or something. I didn't really see them doing this. Mm-hmm. I saw them talking a whole lot. Uh, I mean, I don't pretend to be able to do that all the time, but once in a while I thought of something useful that was new. Mm-hmm. Although some of the major ways, one of me. <laughs> well, some of the major ways to improve people though are not to do things that are new, but to do things we already know. Like you know, wear a seatbelt. From econ, say you know, don't invest in actively managed index funds. In, in, I mean, don't invest in actively managed mutual funds. Invest in index funds. There's just there's a lot of simple things no, that there people are. can do. But uh, and telling I, those to people. I wasn't sure that less wrong was less wrong. I mean, but right. I, I didn't read them a lot. Okay. I read them some. Uh, it's sort of been. It hasn't been very popular recently, and the the traffic has gone to to Scott Alexander's blog. I think that's where the community is mostly moved for now. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, and he used to write for. He used to be one of the major writers at Less Wrong under a, a different name, but. Uh, I also. You were once talking about uh, hyperlexia. Yes. Yes. And he's got to have a bad case of it because I don't see how he has time to go to the bathroom. Yeah, um, he writes so much, and he. I think he feels. And I might also say he, to write. But, make the points he's making without writing so much. Oh, I, I know. I love his writing, so I'm glad he writes a lot, but yeah, it's certainly possible. But he am could... I wrong? Uh-huh. I don't know. I mean, he backs up things carefully. And he certainly, I mean, from an academic point of view, he's not writing that much for what he's what he's saying. I mean, an academic saying what he's saying would, you know, have you really, read a book really on you. depressing me. Well, uh I mean, you'd have to cite everything, everyone who said that, and you make the same point over and over again, and yeah. So he's doing a, he's being far more concise than an academic would writing for academic audiences. Yep. But. Uh, yeah, academics can be kind of strange too. Oh, uh, definitely. You know, my, my, my idea of the perfect paper, uh, somebody had, a uh, mathematician had conjectured that all numbers of a certain form were prime. <laughs> yeah. Well, and somebody published a paper just saying, here's one of those numbers. It is equal to this, you know, 100 digits times this other 100 digit number. That was it. <laughs> that, that's, that's my kind of paper. I like that. Uh-huh. Uh, I just said, it's not prime. Here are the, here are the two factors. Yeah. That's it. Nothing more. Yeah. But uh, anyhow, no, I, I think there's some interesting questions. But uh, I, again, I was talking about things like free speech. Uh, but, you know, there are things we don't really, we, there are things that people kind of think we do know, and they don't really indulge much free speech in electrical engineering. Why should they? And they don't. I mean, they do, but they fire you. I mean, you know, that's that's one way in which they don't totally indulge it. If you started talking about how, you know, V equals IR is not really true. I said, well, it's not exactly true, but, you know, if you think it's the, you come up with some other different equation, you're probably just wrong. I mean, I've seen people start to say, well, you know, physics has this all wrong, and I have my own new theory. And I said, well, you know, you're just nuts. <laughs> well, they, they probably are nuts, I would guess. I mean, Or at least terribly wrong. I mean, the people who come up with different views of physics 
and you know they're not really very good at math. There's probably because at some point the first person talking to them will say, "Look, there's no hope of you being right if you're not if you don't even understand the math." And well, I was actually more polite than that. I listened <laughs> to him, but uh, uh, he wasn't utterly dumb. He was a test pilot actually. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, and by the way, it's if you said there are things we don't know, like for example, I was talking with somebody who actually you know knows his general relativity real well. I only know a tiny bit of it. But I would say, you know, we had, we now have results from this gravitational wave detector of two big black holes merging. One thing, 20, like 20 and 30 solar masses to merging together. Mm-hmm. And, and the total amount of energy released in gravitational waves is like 10 solar masses worth. Okay, a lot of energy. I said, yeah. it is possible, maybe, that when you have these very extreme events, there's things that show up that don't exactly fit Einstein's theory that Einstein's theory works for lower energy things, the, the, the only things we'd ever tested before. Mm-hmm. He said, well, sure, it could be. And he doesn't mean it is, but I mean, like I know enough to know that if there's experimental areas that have never been tested, we might see something new. That's all. It doesn't mean I have a theory of what they're going to be. I don't know. Right. We'll find, uh, but I figure that's the place to look, not in the stuff that we already can get right to nine decimal places. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, freedom of speech. It's an interesting question, but all I see is, you know, the people who are oppressed are mostly right, and the people who are flourishing range from, you know, I mean, of course, you know, there's areas where it doesn't come up. Again, I don't think the electrical engineers are suffering very much, but uh, I don't think most of what we call sociology is very useful or correct. Um, I don't think that, uh, I mean, even things that I had better hopes for have gotten much worse in my lifetime. Well, uh, such as? History. Yeah, uh, yeah it's now, been taken over by political correctness to a large extent. I guess, but I didn't, I hadn't realized how thoroughly, I mean, uh, example a few years back, there was this guy named Belisiles. He wrote a book called Army in America. He argued that in colonial days, few, few people had guns, guns weren't very useful, blah, blah, blah. You know, guns. That, right. It's not like, it's not true, the average Pioneer Farmer had a gun. Mm-hmm. And this book won the uh, Bancroft Prize for History, which is a fairly prestigious history prize in academic circles. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, he made it all up. But I knew that before I even went any further, because I knew damn well that people had guns so they could shoot the deer instead of letting them, you know, what do you think they used? Barbed wire? Mm-hmm. It didn't exist. Uh, they shot them and they ate them. I, I really wonder how much fraud there is in academic research. It's There's so few checks against certain types of fraud, and okay. there's such a high benefit to conducting it that from an well, incentive well, point did, of view. The particular things this guy did, uh, he would look at wills and he'd say, well, they didn't even mention nothing. The guy says, yes, it does. Mm-hmm. He would simply misquote things. The best one, he quoted a bunch of, of legal documents from California, mm-hmm. from historical ones, and, and other people were excited because they said, We've been looking for those a long time. We thought they were destroyed in the 1906 earthquake. Oh. No one else has ever been able to find any of them. Well, gee, you, that's great. Where'd you find them? He said, oh, I, I made them up. He made them all up. Okay. But the point is, the fact we have one jerk, you know, there's always been jerks, yeah. right? But why did the professional, you know, leadership of this field think that was okay? I mean, there's two things. I said... They know so little, they don't know anything about the average 
you know, like what what, what were farmers like at the time mm -hmm. of the revolution? Yeah. Okay. And by the way, I would not discount that. They probably really don't know. The other one says, well, it doesn't matter. It's a good cause because we're arguing for gun control and we're going to do that by retconning history and making everything completely different than it actually was. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, so either they're ignorant as a pig or they think it's okay to lie. But neither of those really cheers me up. Mm -hmm. But they, but it's, but that's, you know, that's, that's not a tiny fractional, it's not like, you know, this was only true of the people studying, you know, Assyrian stone, uh, clay tablets or something. Mm -hmm. We're talking about history. It's common for them to just, you know, they're accepting, either they're, they're completely ignorant or they're accepting of dishonesty. Yeah. And that's not good. Right. Um, and, and they do it in all kinds of things. This wasn't the only one, but this one was an exceptionally clear one. Uh, it would probably be easier if the guy didn't pretend that he had uh, any records. He just dreamed it or well, something. Yeah, I mean, he, he made a mistake of writing on a field where there were people on the other side who were not trusting All right. Of him, so. You can tell me more about economics. Do you worry about fraud there? Well, I think in econ, it's, it's more sort of the stuff you're allowed to do in statistics and it's it's not really fraudulent where you you know you you do p hacking you run regressions until you get the right results and then the other kind of sort of dishonesty is you can make up theoretical models and you know the models are consistent but you can sort of prove what you want to given the right model and you don't really need to have the model correspond to reality no i, I from what i hear again it's not my field mm -hmm. i observe some things i'm interested sometimes but i don't pretend to be an expert I worry whether there are experts, but I don't pretend mm -hmm. to be one. Uh, I hear people saying they feel fairly confident about a lot of things in microeconomics. Mm -hmm. They don't feel the same confidence about macro. True? Yeah, I'm no, true? that is true, and that's <clears throat> macro is just harder. I mean, so well, isn't it in a sense math psychology, too, or as part of it? I mean, it's what people's perceptions of things must matter as well as what you actually did. Well, it's certainly perceptions do matter, and a lot of other things matter too. The problem with macro is it's not a field where we can just say, oh, we won't study it. It's, it's sort of like medicine where if someone has a complicated disease, you're not allowed to say, well, this is just too complicated for us now. We just forget it. You, someone has to do something. So someone at the Federal Reserve so Board has to make a decision. You have to, people running companies have to estimate what the economy will like in seven years. So even though it's, it's really tough to do anything, you, you, doing nothing isn't an option. Or saying I give up isn't an option. But it used to be an option, actually. I mean, there were all sorts of things that we do now that, we, that people simply didn't do. I mean, like, how did you adjust the supply of money back in 1870? You didn't. Well, and it went really, yeah, and things often went really badly. I mean, you, you, you implicitly did with, with different gold standards and doing different things with currencies. So You could say we did the Civil War, but yeah. say up until probably for a long time afterwards, uh, it kind of adjusted itself, I mean, in the sense of people went out and looked for more gold. Yeah, and they find gold, and that would change the money supply, and that's not the, necessarily the best way of running an economy. You should tell me more about the best way, so we can try that. Well, uh, the, there, uh, but for, I don't know the example, best way. <laughs> I, I was talking to uh, my kids about some parts of American history, and I was talking about this period after the Civil War, in which there was gradual deflation because... Mm -hmm. Uh, the amount of gold was not changing very much. A lot of it, a lot of gold has been around a very long time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a, a good fraction of all the gold around actually goes back to classical times. Mm -hmm. or, or did they? Less so now because of the South African deposits. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, uh, at any rate, uh, 
so that meant that when you had uh, you had it was harder to pay off your debt as time passed, mm -hmm. which is something that's pretty different from what we're used to with inflation right. and so forth. Uh, that there was gradual deflation happening in a lot of the world because there was more stuff but no more money. Mm -hmm. You know, with with all you know, increasing factory production, lots of fast increases in amount of agricultural production mm -hmm. uh, in places like America, South America, and Australia, and other things. Uh, so, uh, you know, when the farmers complained that they were getting you know screwed by the bankers, they were right in a way you don't usually see yeah. today. They were having to pay you know what something like 40% more than the original worth uh, of the loan, uh, mm -hmm. if, they, if it was over 30 years or something. Interesting. But, uh, uh, like, one of the things I paid attention to some, you know, was the 2008 crunch. Yeah. And I knew there was a real estate bubble. I did not know how big it was because, I hate to admit it, I did not care. I was bored. I should have paid attention since obviously nobody else did. Well, I, I mean, a lot of economists it. did know about the risk, and I mean, would would write about it, saying this is, you know, we're we're creating this horrible situation where if housing prices collapse, you know, the the government will be on the hook. So, I mean, economists have been criticizing Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac for their loan guarantees for a long time since before the crisis. But you realize an awful lot of that was people you would have thought, you know, like Western Mutual, mm -hmm. I believe, or Washington Mutual. That was it. They were private companies that did all the same stupid things, and they led to Fannie Mae, and they, mm. they, they caught up with them. They weren't the real initiators of this. But they probably thought they were. They had an implicit government guarantee, and they, they kind of did. It was sort of the government was poisoning this whole market by accepting a bunch of the downside risk. Uh, they could have been thinking that. They could have not been thinking anything at all. Mm. Uh, I mean, one of the things that happened is you know, people have had bubbles well before anybody thought that the government was going to back it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think they were thinking that in 1929 or in the tulip mania or whatever, right. or the South Sea bubble. People, It seems to be something that people do from time to time. Uh, yeah. and, and one of the funny parts is when they're contemptuous of you when you don't get in on it, because mm -hmm. uh, that, that could be genuinely funny. Uh, but uh, I saw estimates of what fraction of economists made any reasonable claim to have seen this coming, like 1%. percent. Well, I mean, I remember I wrote... Is that correct? I don't know. I bet Are it's higher. I mean, most of them, most of us, most of us weren't looking at this problem, but I remember I wrote on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, like, this could go badly, and I didn't consider myself being a maverick or anything. It was just I was doing, you know, this is just conventional economic wisdom. So, I mean, we, we knew about the risk. I mean, the risk of deposit insurance, economists have known about that, and we've taught about that, that that's just, sure. it creates horrible incentives. It's just we don't know a politically political way to not have deposit insurance or to monitor the banks. So it's like this, this, this horrible risk that you know, the government creates. So I think, uh, okay. I know, I mean, economists, we're good at noticing problems, but we're not good at coming up with ways for the political system to correct the problem. Alan Greenspan didn't see it. Uh, yeah, people say he was a libertarian until he got power, and then. No, well, yeah. but he was he was a nut. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't that, know that, about that. That would be my well. I, here's an interesting sub question, which is like, when a person is completely nuts on subject X, to what extent does it bleed over into other subjects? And I don't think it always does. Uh, but you know, all we have to do is do it some for it to be mm -hmm. worth knowing, right? Yeah. Uh, so one of the examples I always thought of Alan Greenspan 
when you think about him being, you know, a sensible grown-up person, is, you know, he was a member of Ayn, Ayn Rand followers, who were right. sort of cult-like. Right. And one of the things that I remember happening is there was a guy named Nathaniel Brand who was an, a member of this, who was, uh, uh, I believe, uh, Ayn Rand's boy toy. Oh, yeah, I've read about him. He was already married, but, you know, you know, she, as the leader, deserves such <laughs> such privileges. And then one day, he probably said to himself, why am I sleeping with Anne, Anne Rand? Because she's kind of a nasty, crazy, ugly old person. <laughs> so he quit and found himself some young person got married. Mm-hmm. And she was angry, very, mm-hmm. very Imagine. angry. Yes. And one of the things she did was that all the true inner circle all had to sign a letter talking about how they would never, ever speak to Nathaniel Brand again. <laughs> and he was a traitor to the movement. And because you know he had committed the ultimate sin, he had refused to pork Ayn Rand. <laughs> I mean, indefinitely. And I remember that Greenspan, at the age of 42, was one of the guys who signed that letter. And I remember thinking, I don't know, I probably have this old kind of Midwestern farmer idea of what a sane adult is. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't include that. <sighs> no. Well, actually, some of... But how much... But bleed over... We need a word for this, which is being crazy on X. How much does it make you crazy and everything else? And I don't think it's 100%, but I think it's worth thinking about. Well, that's actually something that they talked about a lot on on Less Wrong, especially in the context of religion, how some very sane people who are very good at doing math and physics and analyzing things can have just completely nutty views about religion. And then with politics, too, that people can believe crazy things about politics and yet still be really good at some kind of rational analysis. So it's, it's parts of our brain are much better at figuring out reality than other parts of our brain. And it's really useful to know that about yourself. That you Well, know. I mean, if somebody at Less Wrong had invented something or solved a problem or made mm-hmm. a prediction that had really, really impressed me, I would have thought the same thing about Less Wrong. <laughs> okay. But I never saw that happen. <laughs> Okay. Well, if they do figure out friendly artificial intelligence, then I, I assume you'll update well, that their Well, that would count for something, sure. Uh, I mean, I don't mind people trying, but, uh, like, for example, I can think of people that I know are sharp and have been very incisive and figured out new things that nobody else ever figured out, mm-hmm. and I don't agree with them on everything. And those people, I would wonder about, maybe there isn't much bleed over, or maybe there is, or maybe it's, you know, there's a finite amount. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I never saw it on Less Wrong, but I never watched them carefully but i said you know uh you know there were things that i was interested in that i made some predictions and some of them were right Mm -hmm. but i didn't see that there but i again i didn't watch them for years probably i would have needed to Mm -hmm. to see that sort of thing uh uh so uh i didn't think they were all that sensible i uh Although I, I admit, you know, you're at least showing a certain humility when you say less wrong as opposed to, you know, more right or something like that. Yeah, uh, someone started a website called More Right. It was a right-wing alternative to less wrong. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I think personally that it's real important to be correct. Uh, yes. I, that, you know, if your theories say that things are going to work out some other way and they, if they don't, said, you know, you probably need to adjust them. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that doesn't mean you always have to adjust all of your assumptions. Uh, the assumptions could be sort of to the side of your model. Like you could say, I think people are, you know, not all bad. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really kind of a statement of faith. Certainly there's not much evidence for it. Mm-hmm. But 
you could stick to it if you wanted to, and it still wouldn't. And if you say, as long as you don't assume that there's actually any practical way in which they're ever going to show it, it doesn't have to interfere with any of your models. No, this actually, in Less Strong, they talk about making your beliefs pay rent, that your beliefs are only useful if they can constrain what you think is going to happen. And if you have a belief that doesn't constrain reality, it's useless and you should try to expel it from your brain. Oh, I don't know. I mean, there's plenty of room. Well, uh, I have all, or some of them might someday constrain reality, but you know, it's a long time before the question's going to show up or something. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, well, I mean, here's the question. There have been... I, I sound like I blow out my own heart. Probably I am. But for okay. example, back 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 on this question of like the weapons of mass destruction. Did anybody at Less Wrong figure out what was going on? Uh, no, or were you certainly. there at the time? I don't know if you were. Right? I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember if it's. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think it was. It it existed back then. I'm not. I'm not really sure though. But no, uh, and I was certainly wrong about that. I thought Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. Well, I would argue that your problem was that you didn't know enough facts about the nuclear development cycle. Yeah, and that that's certainly true. I was going. Which is not the same as being an idiot. Okay, well, thank you. Well, but I mean, some things would be the same as being an idiot. Yes. That's not one of them. On the other hand, if you had somebody who's, uh, you know, like if you're in the military, high up, or. Uh, you know, a responsible person in the government, since even if you didn't know them, you could go ask mm -hmm. or even say, here, you guys, go. Write me a fairly complete account of, 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 of the issues on this. Mm -hmm. You know, and they could do that, but nobody did, apparently. Mm -hmm. uh, so I still blame them, even though it might be asking a bit much for them to know that, but it wasn't a bit asking them a bit much for them to have a lackey check. Right. But they did. Uh there were actually lackeys that knew, but they were, but they couldn't get anybody to listen. It was exciting and frustrating. I think it must actually, if I'd been right in the middle of that, I, I would have been miserable. I was miserable anyhow because I had a fairly clear picture of what was going to happen, and I thought it would be awful. Couldn't uh, the lackeys get someone at the leak to the Washington Post that hey, a lot of people in the CIA don't think Saddam Hussein has these weapons? Nobody in the CIA knew enough to do it. So where were the lackeys who knew this? DOE. Uh, oh, places like Sandia Labs, uh, people who worked at, you know, more like that. Uh, physicists, not... Uh, uh, actually, I, I had a friend uh, who uh, did, like, sort of technical consulting to the CIA. They'd ask him, hey, you know, will this missile fly this far? Various things like that. And uh, he thought that they only had about one guy who could have done it, and he was working on somebody else, somewhere else. They, I mean, that struck me as strange. I mean, the CIA has had like 10,000 direct employees and a lot more uh, contractors. Yeah. And I said, you thought, but the other thing is you'd have to want to know. I mean, like, this would be saying, hey, Mr. President, you're completely wrong. Here, right. I can show it. Well, they don't really want to do that. And yeah. if they do, they don't stay long. You know, that's kind of the way it is. Uh, but I'm trying to think of how many people do I personally know who, who could appreciate this argument. There were a few guys who had done some you know, who, who knew the nuclear production cycle. I mean, didn't necessarily mean, you know, they were high up, mm. but they knew it. I, I knew a few people who knew. Uh, my, my friend, uh, he said, well, it is true that I should, I should know things that prove this, and I don't know any. They must have some secret source. Uh. So he was operating on kind of faith. He knew that all the things he knew, that none of them fit this story, and that a lot of them should have. Yeah. But he said, well, there must be something out there I don't know. I said, 
I said, well, you've talked to me before about when you briefed higher up people. How many times did they ever know something you didn't? He said, the only he never the highest guy he ever briefed who knew anything in terms of understanding technical questions was the guy who was a one-star admiral. Mm. Generally, they, uh, you know, we don't pick people. That's not how we pick them, and they're not there. I mean, but you know, that could just be me being, you know, old and bitter or something. But, uh, but you know, things don't work out the way they expect hardly ever. Well, uh, I yeah. mean, if if you read a popular book, a history of the Middle East, and remembered it, you'd know more, as far as I can tell, than most of the key players who mm -hmm. addressing that question. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean. There was a book that almost, I think, figure somebody suppressed it about, uh, yeah, but I've talked about it before. Uh, they were interviewing high up people at congressional committees, and they'd say, you know, can you tell us Sunni from Shiite? No, they didn't know. <laughs> they they felt bad about it. They knew they should know, but, but they didn't know. Yeah. Uh, or the head FBI counterterrorism guy, he didn't know. You know, the guy was going to write a book about it, but it never happened. I think somebody paid him to not write the book. Which, by the way, is, is a potentially lucrative business model we should consider. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I've had people tell me not, you know, the book I wrote with Henry, I told people, had people tell me not to write it. But, uh, uh, well, I still don't absolutely know why. And I think they were misguided because I don't think it, I mean, I'm trying to think of how many people read it and thought, yeah, gee, I kind of understand that. And that's how things work. A few, but, you know, it doesn't really make any difference. Uh, I mean, I don't think it does. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I was saying that, uh, well, as I said, if, if people found, you know, super clear scientific uh, evidence of things they don't want to believe, they're still not going to believe them. I don't. I, I've never understood. Like, really? Everybody has a choice. They don't have to believe anything you don't want. Uh, particularly when you can't understand it. Anyhow, what what would it mean to say you have no? Go back to the sort of less strong like solution to the problem, the Iraq information problem, would be to set up prediction markets and have people make bets over whether they'd find weapons of mass destruction conditional on a U.S. invasion. And then the people who did know could, you know, bet a lot of money. And that would be a way of getting... working out very well? I'm just curious. I uh, know people trying. Well, I mean, I think they're, you know, the, the main place we have them is the sports, and I think the betting markets on sports are generally pretty good. It didn't work out with the election for Trump. Um, the betting markets were about with the polls, but these markets aren't very big. I kind of thought he was going to make it, but but I didn't get involved in the betting market, so it's it's my own fault for not joining. I did. I I, I made about twenty five hundred dollars off of Trump winning, but oh, well, what was your rationale? Um, well, it was actually I bet a lo I bet a long time ago. I bet early in the primary. I was reading Scott Adams' blog about yes. um, Trump as the master persuader, and I'm like, you know, this is right. This makes sense. And so when Trump was at 18, the betting markets were had him at 18%, I'm like, well, this is a good bet. And I never thought he was more likely than not to win, but I thought easily more likely than 18%. And then I, I stuck with it. I, I, I panicked after that Access Hollywood tape came out and I sold a bunch of my, um, my, my bets, which was obviously in retrospect horrible, but yeah. Uh, uh, I made a little money, but I didn't bet any money at all. How did you make That's, money then? Uh, uh, the uh, the night before the election, I finally said, this is my take. I, I kind of thought that people were reluctant to answer correctly to the polls, and that was, mm -hmm. I think, a, certainly a part of it. Although it was kind of regional, but it was certainly true in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And I said, I think he's probably going to win. And so a couple of guys... <laughs> 
other people went and bet, and some of them tipped me afterwards. Ah, that's useful. I mean, not not, not that much, but something. Uh, 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 it's evidently easier to make some of these bets if you're not a U.S. citizen. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, that's true, because you can, the be- easiest place to bet was England, and... Yeah, I think so. And they're careful yes. about taking American money because of our anti-terrorism laundering rules or whatever. Is that really what... Oh, they're afraid of terrorists betting on themselves? No, something? it's just because of the terrorist stuff, the U.S. government is really good at stopping money from being transferred from U.S. banks. I heard that, I've heard of people who were worried that terrorists would be shipping money through uh, World of Warcraft and then turning it back into dollars again. Oh, yeah, that, that could happen. Things, things, <laughs> or whatever that the game of the moment is, uh, you know, things of that sort. I remember I was playing a video game a long time ago, and you could like use real money to buy stuff, and you could give it to your friends. And I was one of the guys I became friends with in game was Iranian, and it occurred to me that if I used real money to buy him a gift, I might be violating American law. Uh, I was involved in things like that uh, probably around the time you were born. Uh, what there was a uh, there was an interterminal n- network, uh, supposedly for educational purposes, that was available. It was centered at the University of Illinois. It was called Plato, mm-hmm. and it was and it was built by Control Data, which used to be a big computer company. And then they had uh, they had made you know they had uh, terminals. They had you know big computers for the time, mm-hmm. and people, of course, wrote interterminal games, uh, which you could then play, and you could, uh, you know, eventually say, well, you know, we have to stay down in this dungeon and wait until the guys from Hawaii finally get onto their terminals, because they don't get in until 10 o'clock Hawaii time, so we have to wait till dawn, mm-hmm. things of that sort. And it, and it got to the point where I introduced a, probably a bad new habit. I think I was probably the first person in the world which was you could start buying magic items and gold <laughs> in the game with real money. <laughs> uh, and after a while, the sysops on the computer were putting up the gold dollar exchange rate three times a day <laughs> up on the blackboard. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, I had people offering to give me $100 and candid photos of their sister for, oh, you know, uh, a sword plus one pro undead, things like that. <laughs> I didn't do it. I... The reason was basically because the guy was, I think, a freshman in high school, and I felt like I would have taken advantage of something. Yeah. I wish I had, but uh, I, I didn't do it. Uh, but I did bring up the idea. So I was the first person to suggest uh, <laughs> selling uh, selling these things uh, for real money. Uh, that is, as far as I know, but I think certainly close to the first, if not the first. Uh, and we, we even had sort of a little discussion, sort of like a blog, where uh, I, I remember... Uh, the title was uh, "It It Don't Mean a Thing If You Don't Get That Swing," <laughs> uh, but uh, of the sword. But uh, yeah, it was interesting. Uh, and in fact, by the way, back in those days, uh, uh, I think I may have already told you this, but mm-hmm. a spam was better. Uh, you know, we, we would write you know long, elaborate, passionate love notes to somebody we'd never heard of <laughs> in France or something. Uh, and they were high quality too. Uh, uh, we get answers. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but we didn't understand the key thing, which is to promise them $10 million. Uh, uh, we didn't do that. Uh, that didn't occur to us. Uh, but uh, it was it was interesting. And one, I barely, one reason I probably barely graduated, uh, which they, they have that effect on a lot of people, I think, uh, uh, computer games. You know, uh, a related question, you know, uh, 
there are a lot of things that are attractive to people that are probably bad for them. Yes. Uh, and that's another libertarian theory problem, if you ask me. Uh, and there's probably nothing worse than drugs, because drugs can cheat. They can deliberately go in, you know, to the the systems that are essentially for brain, you know, for brain reward. Right. That you're supposed to say, I am happy now. I killed a deer. I got a woman. Something like that. I am recently content. You can maybe get the content without having achieved anything at all. Yeah, they're, they're super or stimuli. Something like that. Something like that. Yeah, super stimuli. Because they cheat. Right. Um, and that's another um, solution to the Fermi paradox is that all civilizations figure out ways of cheating and they just, they don't go anywhere. Once once you can make heroin crack, your civilization stalls. Uh, well, I don't think it's doing us any good. It would actually be an interesting question of, you know, the thing is the number of people who, you know, for the worst drugs, the number of people who use them is not too high. Uh, you know, the ones that tend to get killed by overdoses is mm-hmm. not too high. Like, Probably nobody's ever managed to get killed by an overdose of marijuana. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless they choke to death or something. Uh, uh, but uh, but I don't think it makes people, you know, more productive in general. Uh, but again, you know, I said, well, why do you want them to be? And 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 everybody agrees with this to some extent. We wouldn't there wouldn't be such a thing as uh, vacations or anything, right? right. Uh, although, I, actually, one thought related to that. Uh, uh, you know, somebody was talking about how. Uh, there was a theory that, you see, evidently, uh, I think, uh, Pseudo Erasmus, do you ever read his stuff? Uh, who? Is, who again? There's, a, there's a, an anonymous economics blogger who, who talks mostly about economic history, and I think mm-hmm. he's quite good. Uh, people are citing him, which I think is, people don't quite know how to do it, when they, nobody knows who he is. Yeah. Uh, Pseudo Erasmus. I don't think I've seen that, now. You might take a look, but he does economic history. One thing he was talking about was, uh, it's evidently a known fact that cotton productivity was going up in the pre-Civil War South. Mm-hmm. You know, the, they were getting better at picking cotton. And somebody wrote a book explaining, well, they're getting better at torturing people and whipping them. Mm-hmm. I said, which you'd think would have been a, you know, we would have known how to do that a long time ago. Right. Uh, and he was pointing out one thing that happened is they were breeding for somewhat different forms of the cotton plant that tended to have the bowls at something closer to arm level. Wow. That makes a lot of, you know, like, you know, strawberries are hard to pick because they're so close to the ground. Right. Your, your, your back will get tired even if you're young and flexible, where there's other things where that's much less of a problem. He, and he thought a lot of it was that. But I was thinking one of the questions which, again, economists must think about is, uh, you know, uh, there is a, there's such a thing as the maximally useful work week, although it's got to be different for different jobs. Mm-hmm. I was reading in World War II, they started extending the work you know, the hours work per week in, in Britain. Mm-hmm. And after a point, they said, you know, we extended it, and then productivity went down. Right, or becomes negative went, at some point. Yeah, I mean, they had gone past the peak. Right, right. Uh, they got up to 60 hours. That was too much. Now, again, it may depend on what sort of thing you're doing. So maybe if it's complex work, uh, being tired makes you make more mistakes than mm-hmm. perhaps it's something simpler, like being a jolly slave or something. Yeah. At any rate, but they found that there was a practical uh, top. And uh, I would think that would apply. A question like, you know, you can't make, you can't get more work out of a slave than there is to get be gotten out of it. I mean, if you try to make it work ninety hours a week, it's not gonna, it's not gonna happen to anybody. Right. I mean, you're not going to get something better out of that. Maybe you could keep him awake, but you know, I, I wonder if anybody's looked at that sort of thing. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm sure almost every aspect of slavery has been examined by at least economists doing whatever data they have. 
Well, of course, they, they spend a lot of time being crazy, but... Uh, yeah, but analyzing data, too. <laughs> well, that and, and that's not a bad thing. It's just that, you know, it's... You, you know, almost the best thing to study is stuff that bores people because it seems that maybe they'd be less likely to go off on a weird tangent if they didn't, if they weren't emotionally terribly excited about the question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, slavery is one of those questions. I mean, there are certainly many people in the past who said, well, slavery, you know, didn't even make any money. And I said, well, how did they, where did they, how did they buy the slaves? Mm-hmm. I mean, where did, you know, obviously it made money. Yeah. I mean, they had to pay a lot for slaves. Yeah, no, I mean, the slaves were selling for a high price. Slavery had to be profitable. Uh, on the other hand, it doesn't actually mean, like if you think of a past system, it doesn't actually, it's not actually necessarily true. They did everything in a way that was close to optimal, even considering, you know, the technical situation of the time. Mm-hmm. There are things that people just didn't do. I mean, some of them you would have thought, well, of course they did, but they didn't. I mean, like today, you might be able to make a case that... Uh, that that uh, there's not really sex discrimination in hiring, mm-hmm. or not much. Right. And you might say, if it was, that somebody would hire all these women at, at a lower price and make a fortune. Yes, that's the standard yeah free market argument argument. But it but it can't have been true always because there were certainly times in which people did pay them less. Now sometimes that was partly because of local laws and things, but it certainly happened. I mean, you know, they like at the Civil War, they hired the same job and they would pay them less. Were, were the women just as productive, though? A lot of these things, I would think so. Sewing jobs or something, they still paid a bless. Now, there, there were social customs and sometimes laws, but they did do it. Mm-hmm. But again, some of these things, they gradually did less of it. I mean, but I'm saying you can't project, uh, you know, like perfect efficiency back necessarily into the past, yeah. uh, even, if you're, even if you're close to it now. And I'm sure there's things that, that we do that aren't, you know, perfectly efficient, obviously, but... Uh, but there are times in which they used to do it a different way, and they really don't do it that way now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's a the transition period can be fairly long. Uh, like if somebody said, "I could get all these washing done by the Chinese for less," that may not have taken too long to get to. But some other things, there's pretty strong prejudices, pretty strong social patterns. They take a long time uh, to change. I mean, either that, or women were mysteriously far less productive at a factory job then and aren't now. Uh, well, I, wait, for some jobs, if it involves strength, that would actually make sense. Mm-hmm. But that's, I don't think that's most of it. I mean, I, I have no idea what was happening. There could be that were, were the women taking care of children or someone so they'd have to leave more frequently? Uh, sometimes, perhaps. But, uh, but I don't think it was just straight economics. I think that because, you know, the differentials could be really big. You know, mm-hmm. 40, you know one, would be pay, one person doing essentially the same thing would make 40% of the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, again, there's kind of always incentives to cheat, but, you know, sometimes people just do it a certain way for a long time, even if it might make more sense to do it some other way. I'm sure that there are things like that we're doing now. Oh, yeah. People look back and, why did you ever do it that way? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but I also think you find it mysteriously hard and sticky to change it. Uh, well, for example, uh, uh, why do we have... Well, yeah, here's one. Why do we have lectures instead of instead of having a bunch of starving adjuncts and tape lectures, why do we have professors? Oh, well, I know part of the answer is because professors have a lot of power at universities. So you have to look at what's the purpose of a university. It might be in part to maximize the welfare of the professors. So. Uh, well, here's an interesting question. Like, If you look, at, in terms of constant dollars, college is a lot more expensive than it used to be. Oh, yes. Now, 
my number that floats around in my head is like since 1970, maybe two and a half times, mm -hmm. something like that. Okay. And this has changed things. It means that uh, a lot of people graduate with a lot of debt. And that, other than some specialized things like medical school, that didn't used to be true. Right. And even medical school, it wasn't that big a deal mm -hmm. back then. Uh, so uh, I, I have one, and I blogged about this. I said, could you start, you know, state you, make it a fairly good school, and then run it in many ways very similar to what you did in 1970 and make it two and a half times cheaper. I think there's a few things that would be hard. There are certain places where, like if you wanted to hire doctors at a medical school, they have to compete with current doctor salaries, which are much higher mm -hmm. than they were then. But uh, most things, I think you could do it or come close. I know some of the changes. You know, one of the reasons people tend to sort of flake out of this problem is it's not one single thing. Like a lot of times, when if, think is, I think if it's not one single factor, people kind of throw up their hands. It's, you know, it's impossible. You have to read a whole book to understand it or something, mm -hmm. so people don't. But one, I know of two big things. One of them is that professors have much lower teaching loads than they used to. Yes, yes. And the other one is they have a whole lot more administrators than they yeah. used to. Uh, and it strikes me that considering, uh, you know, are there people who would like to teach somewhere who have trouble getting a full-time job? Oh, yes. You ought to be able to find some. And are they going to be worse than the people that hire? I said, probably, but not very much worse. I mean, if you have hundreds of, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, what's the fraction of, of postdocs that don't, you know, turn long-term academic? Most mm -hmm. of them, right? It depends on the field, but a lot don't. Generally speaking, yeah. So why can't you create a, something that's very similar to UCLA or Berkeley in 1965 and costs mm -hmm. like that? Well, part of the I think you need the administrators because of, of laws. So there's so many more regulations that have to be followed. So well, you, you my could... first theory was we'll make it a secret university. Uh, people in the past have sometimes used <laughs> classification. So so you know what's the advantage of this project being classified? Well, it really didn't have to, but we get to violate all kinds of stupid rules. Uh, yeah. Well, I've heard. Yes. But that violates if the signaling view of college, where you're, you're, the perfect, the point of going to college is to prove that you could do it. So if well, you keep well, it secret, we still make it so it's tough to get in. We can do that. Well, it also, it also has to be tough to graduate from. This will be like CI. Well, it'll be moderately tough, but there's no point. The, you know, none of this stuff. I don't think that the. If anything, it was tougher to graduate then than it is now. It was much more common for people to flunk out of college. I, I saw them. Today, people, few do. People don't flunk out of elite colleges, but at State U, I think it's very common. Or they take like seven years or something. It's. But elite uh, colleges tend to select for people who aren't going to, who are diligent enough to not flunk out. Not only that, they, they, they cosset them a lot and try oh. to make sure they don't. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, but, I, but I think that... Uh, I don't see any reason why it couldn't be done. I mean, uh, I mean, we did it before. That's usually kind of a sign that it's not absolutely impossible. Mm -hmm. And if you, if the courses are the same level of difficulty, people can talk about, well, yes, but there's all the magical, invisible things that are different. I said, yeah, like what? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, I bet, I bet you could make it work. Anyhow, two and a half times cheaper would be a good thing. The, the current system is silly. Oh, I, I, mean, I agree. It's it's far too expensive. Uh, a friend but... of mine. Uh, his wife had graduated from Yale Law, mm -hmm. and I had this elaborate plan why they should have their honeymoon in Mexico, and then he should fake her death. <laughs> and then uh, she comes back as somebody named with a, you know, although she doesn't look very Mexican, but, you know, people vary. And and then she comes up with a different identity, <laughs> one that does not owe $80,000. <laughs> 
uh, it's student debt. Uh, but but she wouldn't go for it. Well, it wouldn't uh, be worth it for her because she she wouldn't get admitted to the bar. She wants to be able to tell people she went to Yale Law, so it would have to be she'd have to fake the you know she'd have to fake being someone who has a diploma from Yale. Make it be the well, I mean, you know, she could probably steal her own identity back. I mean, there's <laughs> got to be there's got to be some way to do this. And the thing is, uh, I mean, I'm not absolutely sure I would. Well, you know, if we're talking about things that don't make any sense, I'm not actually sure you can make a very good case for our legal system either. I mean, I, I, I know I'm sounding like a pan cynic, but yeah, uh, I mean, if you win something that was better at making the in, letting the innocent go and convicting the guilty, and maybe while we're at it, reducing overall crime, I had no reason to think that the way we do it today is actually very close to the right way. Uh, I don't think anybody really cares, but uh, if I were king, I would do mm. something. Yeah, it's, I'm sure it's not it's not optimal, but it's I don't know it's not, not that horrible. Probably not by about a factor of eight. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, are you for something where we have the judge make the final determination? You you have experts who decide whether the person's guilty or innocent. I mean, w- one of the things about this is when you look at say this is well, there's good reasons. This is the only way we can do it. It doesn't hurt to look and say, well, how do they do it in Canada? Or yeah. How do they do it in Scotland? Or how do they do it in Germany? And I don't think that they do it. In, I mean, like the legal systems are not terribly similar. I mean, like in places like Canada, you have to prove you're innocent, more or less. Mm-hmm. I mean, excuse me, France, you know, mm-hmm. con, you know, Code Napoleon type yeah. stuff. Yeah. But I don't have any real reason to think that it works tremendously worse than what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in Japan, they just expect you to confess. I don't think that would work here, but it's, it is a sign things can be different. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or again, uh, Canada doesn't tend to have the, you know, the, the, the prestigious super uh, hard to get into schools, mm-hmm. as I understand it. Uh, like, you know, the schools you've heard of, it's not all incredibly difficult to get into. Right. But, you know, they still, still they manage to keep the lights on and, uh, you know, do research and stuff, even though they don't do it very similar to the way we do. Uh, I mean, I think if somebody goes to Waterloo, they probably learn stuff. Uh, of course, that's the other question. What's another question that we might talk about? You know, how much of education is signaling, which has got to be, you know, most of it. I think especially at the, at the higher levels, because they don't really care if you teach anything that's practical. I mean, other than maybe an engineering are you getting, or Are you hurting yourself here by admitting this? Oh, no, I talk about the signaling theory of education in my classes to my students. I mean, it's a, uh, you know, a lot of economists believe in it. Uh, but that suggests that it's, you can, at a societal level, you can save a lot. I mean, oh, like, you could. what I was talking about is just... Like, suppose we had this school and we taught people only the useful things, and we taught that in an efficient way. Now, there, we're talking about huge differences in expenditures of education, right? Oh, yeah. No, I, I think our system is, is horrible, and I, I have so little power, of course, that my saying this isn't really noble, even though I'd lose if they put less money into higher education, because I know what I'm saying has no marginal impact on the you world. Have, you, have, you have faith nobody will listen to you, so you feel... feel right. Okay. But I think, I mean, you know, England, they go to college for three years after high school. We'd be far better off moving to that system. Is it typically three? At, yeah. at, at say, Cambridge or something? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a three-year three oh, okay. degree. And I see no reason why we couldn't do that. It would save a huge amount of money for our students. So well, if the I, other thing is, you know, what fraction of degrees do you end up actually learning something basically useful? And it can't. My, I went through the you know the distribution of what people major in and so forth. Mm-hmm. My estimate was only about twenty percent. I don't think it's zero, but uh, even in majors where it's useful, I mean, how much of that would you have picked up anyways if you uh, at, at the workplace? 
I mean, the argument, of course, is that professors are teaching students how to think, but there's not really evidence that we do that. Uh, well, what if they teach them not to think? Maybe that's the good uh, <laughs> yes. Maybe they succeed in that. Uh, yeah. It's an interesting question. Uh, and I, I think I have weird biases on it because I have an unusually good memory. So all these things, one of the major considerations here is people say, uh, well, but you know, nobody remembers this stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's not terribly far from true. Right. But I remember it. So, you know, like I have one of my kids is doing something and I said, oh, that's scattering theory, right? I said, when's the last time you used scattering theory? I said, uh, when I was uh, in grad school, but I haven't actually ever used it, but I still know how to do it if I have to. Or sometimes the magic thing is just remembering where to look it up. But I would, but it would take me a lot less time than it did the first time. Well, well for I don't for, sorry. Go ahead. For econ majors, they sometimes test people who graduated and majoring in economics, and they give them a basic economic test, and they really don't do very well a few years after they graduate, from what I remember. Well, again, it depends. What's like uh, I had a friend who was, uh, I still have that friend, he's a good friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, he graduated and got his PhD in math at Caltech when he was 24. Mm-hmm. Okay, and he's pretty smart. And uh, he was doing some stuff uh, in which he was contracting with people to build complicated signal processing devices. And after a while, the money got big enough that it's some, you know, he was a civilian employee of the Air Force. And at one point, the money got big enough, he said, look, you are supposed to have certain qualifications before you sign off on a contract of this size. Yeah. Okay? So he said, well, you could get a degree in economics. <laughs> or we could give you a test. Probably somewhat similar to the one you were talking about. Mm-hmm. So uh, so he read the book the night before, and he got a near-perfect score. <laughs> so, all these problems are easy to solve. Just have that friend of mine do it. Uh, I mean, well, and if you ask him to, to teach, you know, 40-hour contact hours a week, he'd do that, too, uh, because he'd say, well, I have to earn my pay and everything. Anyhow, but, uh, yeah, if, if you just have freakishly competent people, you can make a lot of things work. Uh, I don't actually – I know that they are, in fact, kind of rare, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, like, people, people shouldn't just talk about this. I said, if we're having people go to school and do a lot of things that end up with them in the hole – would be better if they went off and surfed for four years. Yeah, well, it is true. It's for if you graduate from college, it's a really good investment for almost all students. I mean, it, it definitely but, pays off. But we could is have it for the country. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think it is. If it's all signaling. It, yes, I mean the it's it's to which it is signaling. It's very ex, it's very expensive signaling, and we could do a lot better. Uh, but there is well, the other thing is you know like. Uh, I would guess that disproportionately the things you keep would be stuff like engineering. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but most, but perhaps mostly that. And then there's people saying, well, but what about, you know, there would be people said, the whole heart of my existence was, you know, teaching, you know, Jacobean playwrights or something. Mm-hmm. How will America get by without mm-hmm. people once having been exposed to that and then completely forgotten it? I mean, I don't know. But there will be a lot of people who will, you know, who would be, it would uh, hurt them. They yeah. won't like it. Uh, oh, oh I agree. People, Colleges will hate it. They'll say it'll bring back the dark But a lot of graduates, ages. because you're implicitly saying people have already graduated and were, uh, you know, uh, uh, art history majors, then, mm-hmm. you know, you were, you, you're kind of silly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so th- those people wouldn't like it either. Probably. Well, you could yeah. sell it to them by saying, well, look, your degree will now have more value than anyone who gets it from now on, because you can say you got the full degree while other people are just getting this you know, lesser thing. 
how about other people are saying, no, they, they studied something real, and you're one of those fossil art history majors. I, I think it would be a little bit, uh, I think they wouldn't like it. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, actually, if even one country did this, you know, one country that has occasionally showed a real interest in trying to find more efficient ways to do things, mm-hmm. particularly after their certain things collapsed underneath it, was New Zealand. Uh, for example, they had a thing where the the uh, uh, I think the, uh, the salary of the head of their Federal Reserve was negatively indexed to the inflation rate. It's <laughs> a good idea. Well, part of it, see, they had had kind of a comfortable existence with England as sort of a guaranteed market. Then mm-hmm. England joined the common market, and they had to scramble, and they mm-hmm. got poorer. But they're not dumb. They look for other things, and they also try to reform certain things. They got more free market on some things, like say. Maybe New Zealand is not really big enough to have its own car company. Mm-hmm. You know, the natural impulse is everybody should have their own everything. Right, right. But and they had a car company. For Agata, oh, I know too. But you know, there's only like four million people in New Zealand. It doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, it's 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 difficult to make that work. Uh, but they did some, you know, sort sort. They tried to make do some more rational things with their finance than most. Could. But but yeah, the education thing. I think it would be very interesting to. Uh, if you could even do one one school, I mean, like if you could do one school that simply wasn't needlessly expensive, that's a little easier. Well, it's hard. Everything. It's hard with signaling because the problem is if say there was one school that went to a, a two year system, the danger would be they would attract students who were lazy, who couldn't actually do four years, and so it it might be a bad signal if you go to that school. There are intense. Well, you can't be perfect. You can't exactly duplicate, but we can always say, well, you have to, you know, run an under six minute mile before we even let you in, mm-hmm. or you have to climb, you know, go through this obstacle course. So we know you're not real lazy because yeah. you wouldn't have made it. Yeah, I mean, you could certainly test intelligence, but you also, I, what I teach my students about this, I say, you know, companies, what they really want is smart, diligent conformists. And that's what you would prove by graduating from Smith College. That I mean, if you always. can do the work, you get in, you do the work, you've shown to a reasonable degree, you're smart, you're diligent, and you can conform to what your professors want. And a lot of bosses will like that. Do they feel they feel hurt by that last part? Uh, they laugh at that. So. Do they say? Do they argue that you're wrong? I think they're a little shocked when I say it. I think it's probably true. But the next question is, how correct is that choice of, from the company side? Well. It is now pretty correct because almost everyone who is capable of going to college and succeeding does it. So if you're a higher... Are, those the, are all those the qualities you actually... Like, is conformism always what you want? This is the end of part one of my interview with Greg. Stay tuned for part two, which is about the same length.